Welcome to Between the Gutters, the podcast where we talk about the stories within the panel. Today, we have a very special treat for you guys. I'm Drew Tan, and I'm with my co-host, Albert Lamb, right here. Yep. Right here. <laughs> right here. He's right there, folks. <laughs> right there. And today, we've got our two comrades, guests, friends, allies, recurring guests on our podcast, Zach and Shanus. Say hello, hello guys. guys. Zach, you there? Hey, guys. <laughs> it's just i think shanice and i went at the same time so uh, he like overshadowed me yeah oh. <laughs> so today we are now that we've got uh the four of us we are going to continue our series of comic book recommendations and you know in the past i think back in uh episode uh 16 we did an episode with Shanice and Zach about uh, superhero fiction recommendations. And back in episode 20, we did recommendations for crime fiction. So today we're actually going to do recommendations for science fiction, another genre. And I just want to also reassure everybody that we have not, Albert and I have not forgotten or abandoned our final two in our Marvel top 25 countdown. We'll get back we're, to that at some point. We're just point. really like we're just trying to build gilding up the anticipation lily. and tension. Exactly. <laughs> we're gilding the lily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but uh, that's what I we're just doing. like saying it. I just <laughs> like saying it. It doesn't have to mean anything. <laughs> right on, man. So today we're gonna all share one science fiction comic book recommendation from each of us. But before we do that, Albert, how would you define science fiction? So I'm, before we uh, started this, I just decided that we would just take a pretty broad definition because it would just give us the freedom and the uh, legroom to uh, choose from a wider selection of things that we could consider science fiction. But uh, certainly there are still some very basic core concepts that we would have to adhere to uh, because otherwise, you know, it, we, we run the risk of um, the genre just losing all meaning altogether. So um, I looked up a definition from Wikipedia, and according to them, science fiction uh, is a genre of speculative fiction that typically deals with imaginative and futuristic concepts such as advanced science and technology, space exploration, time travel, parallel universes, and extraterrestrial life. It has been called the literature of ideas, and often explores the potential consequences of scientific, social, and technological innovations. That's a suitable working definition. I feel like most people understand science fiction when you say it. Most people probably think of like Star Wars or something like that, right? Like there's a lot of pop culture, science fiction kind of stuff that, that's uh, pretty prevalent in, uh, nowadays. I think generally speaking, um, in terms of just the mass consciousness, their understanding of sci-fi is on a very basic level. It's just, it's got, it's usually like science related and it's got explosions and lasers <laughs> on, yeah. on a very basic level. But that isn't, doesn't mean that it's necessarily limited to that, um, you know, which we hope to make that point. We, we hope, 
that our recommendations can uh, broaden people's perspectives on the kind of science fiction that you can have access to. Not not to say that you know those kinds of science fiction aren't entertaining or that they don't provide value in it of themselves, which they do. But mm -hmm. you know, we 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 want to hear all voices. Well, yeah. Would most. you guys would you guys consider yourselves science fiction fans, generally speaking? Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty accurate for myself, anyway. I would say as well uh, for me, just because I think science fiction is one of the formative um, forms of literature that drew me into reading and fascination with everything I'm actually doing in my life right now. Yeah. What is it about science fiction that you guys particularly enjoy or appreciate? Why do you guys like science fiction? Um, well, I mentioned it earlier, like as a kid, not, not having, uh, not having a particularly, particularly refined palette. I would have to say that what drew me in was stuff like, um, at least on the shallow end, it was stuff, uh, at least for the shallow reasons, it was stuff like Star Wars, but that isn't to say that Star Wars is shallow, but you know, it was just spaceships, lasers, and you know, Adventures in space. Adventures in space, exactly. Or even something like RoboCop, where it was like robots, <laughs> cyborgs, cyborgs, and you know, and that was Guns. all I really needed. Yeah, exactly. Right, like technology. You got as a kid, you're kind of drawn to moving parts and uh, you know just the inner workings of machines because you know you're just a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, but you know, as you grow older, or as I grew older. Um, I I definitely found more of an appreciation for uh, science fiction that had more to say about science and in some cases even uh, had something to say about um, humanity. Yeah, yeah. totally. Uh, yeah, I, for me, I think, I may have mentioned this before, but it was, I probably was around the age of like six or seven when I saw Star Wars on the TV screen was when I was like, um, general broadcast uh times and i think it was actually happening during um a birthday party for one of my cousins i figured who and i was just i was just so plastered to this movie that i was so fascinated by it that i didn't i didn't care about the birthday or anything that's going on around <laughs> it. and it was this idea that that the force existed it's to, i mean as a child it was like this idea of these mystical powers, this sense of unknown, this um, variety of, of life that could exist, and just the exploration of what we don't know, it is very um, imagination gripping. Mm -hmm. um, especially when you're a child and you don't know that certain physical things really cannot happen, but it doesn't stop you even when you get older to like, ponder, well, perhaps with new developments, some of these things could be achieved. Perhaps there is something out there that despite what we have now, we can't clearly say that this can or cannot always happen. And while certainly a part of that idea, you know, kind of diminished in terms of like, I was like, okay, practically speaking, this probably can't happen, but it still doesn't stop the questions of what if, 
you know, to hypothesize and discuss the ramifications of things such as time travel, um, space travel, how could it even functionally happen, um, the, just the inherent mystery of it all, and just this vast infinitude of what could be out there yeah. um, that we ourselves will never see and we won't ever touch, but it could be out there. Yeah, totally, man. That's wonderful. What about you, Zach? Yeah, well said. Um, I think that really resonates with me. I think, um, you know, just as human beings, there is that sense of, of wonder and that sense of kind of a progressive mindset of wanting to trailblaze and, and ask, basically ask the question, what if? Um, one of the things that's always drawn me most to sci-fi is um, basically just being able to, or trying to answer that question, I think, like exploring what the possibilities are mm -hmm. and extrapolating what's possible from, from what we have now and sort of looking ahead and seeing how that's going to play out. If you ask 10, 15, 20 different people what would the world look like or what could the world look like in 50 to 100 years, you may get 10 or 20 different answers. Like everyone has their own uh, viewpoint of, of kind of the same thing and seeing what each author or what each person can bring to the table in terms of uh, vision and in terms of appreciating what we have now or what can be uh, extrapolated from what we have now, that's inspiring. But then there's also other angles to it as well, where it's like you almost can't look at that and make sci-fi without making a commentary on the human condition. It does say a lot mm. about um, what we value, what we are afraid of, uh, what we love, some things that, you know, get us excited. Like it just, it's almost like uh, wearing your heart on your sleeve. Like as soon as you make a, a sci-fi story, a really good one that, that universally resonates with people and has a timeless aspect to it. I mean, think about the Matrix or Star Wars or whatever. Part of why they're so successful is because they resonate with such a wide audience of people. They encompass that universal um, experience that, that we all have or that universal sense of wonder and it taps into that um, and also makes a commentary on it. So I think the best things sort of force us to look at ourselves and our society and the things that we value and the things that we devalue, it forces us to take a second look at that and to look at it in more detail. Um, if you think about stuff by like Philip K. Dick or something like that, um, all those things sort of take it from one level of extrapolating what's possible, even to a deeper level of, of looking at ourselves and, and why we value the things that we do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really comprehensive answer. So let me let me ask all of you guys this. What do you guys typically look for when you when you're in the mood to consume a science fiction story? Like do you you tend to go to well, I guess maybe first of all it's it's like a kind of a rambling multi-part question here that I've got, but do you guys typically gravitate towards science fiction novels or or tv shows or movies or comics 
was that then of, of your question yeah um yeah um i think for me uh my first love or and first introduction to sci-fi is probably always going to be tv as a as a as a kid, I didn't have a lot of money. I was never able to get a lot of books. And um, my parents weren't always able to take me to the library. So it's not like I had access to a lot of things. Um, and <clears throat> me and you have had this conversation before, um, Drew, but you've always talked about how you've had like this huge love of Star Wars. And I, I, I have my appreciation of it as well. But I think growing up, I was always more of a Star Trek kid. Because, and I've told you this before, which was one of the things about Star Trek was it was on TV all the time as a kid and it was free. Yeah. So, you know, it was something that I would watch all the time, um, even before the next generation came out, which was like my real first love of science fiction. Um, I, I would remember like late at night when I was, you know, I had to be like maybe seven or eight or something like that, maybe even six. And, you know, there aren't any cartoons or anything on at night, but then I turned to this television show uh, and the old school Star Trek with Captain Kirk and Spock and Bones, that was on and they had laser guns, you know, and <laughs> lasers. they had, oh yeah, phasers. They had phasers, not laser guns, copyright. <laughs> and they also had you know hot green skinned women so like as a kid i was just like I i'll admit that the the commentary was lost on me but i i didn't even necessarily know what i was watching most of the time i like i didn't have the um maturity to follow whatever the story was but you know it, it kept me coming back and it, it just happened to be this funny coincidence that there was nothing else on, but it was enough. This, this show had enough for me to keep watching. And then when the next generation came out, it came out at a time when I had just gotten old enough to kind of, not kind of, but to develop a sense of storytelling and, you know, what, what, what plot was and just what, um, what all the various elements were to make a good story. And, uh, yeah, and Star Trek The Next Generation, like, came around at, at that right time. And it's, I've just been a big fan of science fiction ever since. Nice. You guys? Zach or uh, Shanus? Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. For me, it's hard to say, mostly because... Like Albert, I was drawn to Star Trek because it was like just an ongoing thing during my childhood. But it was around the time I entered like, you know, middle school and so forth that, you know, the Star Wars Expanded Universe started going into novel formats. So between the two, it, it's really hard to say which one I gravitated more, whether it was a, a science fiction shows or science fiction um, literature. And I think if anything, I'd probably edge out the literature more just because well, episode could last for 40 something minutes, give or take commercials. If I had a book, it's something I could revisit or it would take longer for me to go through. And I was always drawn by the what if, what will happen next. It was, I wasn't guaranteed to get to any resolution in 40 minutes or 
And also at that time, I didn't quite understand how TV shows worked. I didn't understand the serialization pr purpose or that it was a weekly release with, with occasional breaks. Like I didn't understand that process. I feel you so, there. <laughs> so when, when TV shows would go on break or they replay reruns from the previous, from this existing season to fill in the time, I would like be like, I don't get what's going on. I, I literally, I did not understand the season structure of shows until maybe high school or early college. Yeah. No, exactly, right? Because you get to a point where you're just watching it just because, and you don't necessarily understand that they have a history or like, even if it's not an ongoing story. Nice mug, by the way. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> He's got Spock on his mug. <laughs> yeah, even if it's not an ongoing and story. Kirk. And Kirk on the other side. But even if it's not an ongoing story, um, yeah, like just coming it into coming into it like feet first as a kid, yeah, I was definitely lost too. <laughs> Kids today don't know how good they have it where they can just watch entire series in order, you know, just on uh, the streaming services and whatnot. Heck, yeah. you can buy Instant DVDs gratification, or right? whatever. What's yeah. that? Instant gratification. Instant gratification. But what I will say is with a bit more limited time, I've transitioned, I've transitioned more to the phase where I will more easily digest or go to um, a science fiction show because I can watch something while doing other things and it, it, can, it can fit into my schedule a little bit more easily than trying to take time to really read a book. Because I feel like a, a book just demands a lot more focus and attention. You can't read a book and do something else at the same time because your hands and eyes are occupied. At least I read physical copies of books. I don't read ebooks. Um, with a show, so that I, w I wish for a lot of shows I could give more focus and attention to because a lot of details, a lot of nuances that a lot of writers and creators put into them that are literary worthy. But you get into this psychological um, place where like, well, I can watch a show and do something else because as long as I'm absorbing the content in some way, I've processed the story that happened, I'm content. I was entertained, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I'll add to that idea. Um, I've had moments where I've had the TV on and I'll be doing something else and something will happen that'll catch my attention and I'll be like, oh, hey, this is something else. This is something bigger than, you know, just something to have on in the background. And in that moment, it captures me and I, I begin to give it my full attention moving forward and, and to a point where I'll even go back and I might rewatch some of the old episodes just to like really get a feel for all of the yeah. backstory that developed. So I, I guess it's this weird thing where I, I just want to consume science fiction and I'll just have it on just to say that I can consume it via osmosis. Right. But then it isn't until I see or experience something that like is really interesting to me that I'll be like, okay, uh, you know, what was that line from um, Django Unchained? Uh, but uh, anyways, it was, it's that, it's, you had my attention, but now you've got my something. I don't know. I think it ends on that one, but anyways. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say one more thing before I'll stop talking for a while is that um, the gravitation I have towards science fiction shows more so nowadays is because we, we have a huge history of really quality science fiction literature through the hands of Carl Sagan, Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and even more contemporary writers like John Stack, uh, Michael Stackpole, uh, Timothy Zahn, um, and even others that I haven't had a chance to explore yet. 
And novels are typically less edited as long as it's um, that creator's own like own universe. And it, there's no, there's very minimal editorial oversight as far as I can tell when in terms of they're writing their own stories, their novels, their creation. Whereas when it comes to producing TV shows, the producers, the writers and directors, um, they answer to the shareholders, to the, to the production company or broadcast company that's going to put it on the air because at the end of the day, they're looking to make a show that'll last a few seasons and get enough yeah. viewers to make money for them because they sell commercials in between or so forth. Everything um, is focus grouped. And, and, and it goes to focus groups. So a lot of things get, get tailored away that you, sometimes you wonder whether or not what you're seeing is the vision of the original creator. Yeah. Which um, I think for like when it was on the sci-fi, when you had the sci-fi channel, a lot of really good series yeah. there. Um, that finding a good science fiction show is really hard, especially since um, I think there's a period of time in even the 2000s where there was like a lull between not really having any good science fiction on air at any given time. Mm. And it, it feels much harder to find a good science fiction show or even movie that I can latch onto and say, I would like to watch this again and again. Could I interject something though? Just, sure. just to play devil's advocate. I, I will say that, um, and I don't want this to become a, a, a thing about television shows because that's not what this podcast is about. This podcast is about comics. And that's our, that's, yep. you know, we're here to express our love for it. But I just wanted to mention though, I do feel like um, a lot of the science fiction that's coming out now, um, I do feel like we're, we're seeing things from different um, sources. Are you talking about it's, shows? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, so shows, and I think it applies to comics, too, actually. Okay. But, um, so I, I, I think it applies. But uh, there was a period in time where science fiction was really limited to just two or three, like, shows for the sake of this specific section of the conversation. But... Um, Ever since we've had the uh, advent of the streaming service, there's been a lot of stuff that's been coming out. And I'm not even necessarily talking about, you know, things that are super popular. There, there are a lot of things that a lot of these streaming shows tend to take a chance on, you know? Um, yeah, wasn't there this uh, kind of obscure indie one called The Mandalorian recently? <laughs> Mandalorian. But, uh, Albert, right. I, I definitely agree what you're saying. I what I didn't mention is that now with the advent of streaming services, we now have access to a lot more creative content that we did yeah. before that was like focused through a certain yeah. channel. Um and I do think that so this I'm I'm talking about Netflix here uh as one example, but I, I think it applies to the comic industry as well. But uh like when Netflix was trying to get off the ground and really trying to get big, I do think that they took a lot more chances on a lot of different material and nothing happens in a vacuum. So when other um, streaming services decided that this was the model of the future, what you ended up seeing was everybody started to produce their own uh, material to kind of compete. So Netflix came out and they were like, we're, we're going to do something like Stranger Things and Lost in Space and Umbrella Academy, but we're also going to do stuff like Black Mirror, you know? And then what, what happened is uh, CBS, I think it's CBS, decided we're going to do our version of, we're going to bring back the Twilight Zone, but we're going to bring it with 
uh, modern sensibilities with Jordan Peele, you know, uh, who who at the time was coming off a huge success of Get Get Out, mm-hmm. Get Out, yeah. yeah, and then um, and even Amazon decided to have their own thing, which was uh, Electric Dreams, I think, which was based off a a, a Philip K. Dick series, I believe. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I think that yeah. was the series is based yeah. on. Right. Yeah. Good so, series, by the way. Yeah. yeah. And so we're we're definitely seeing um yeah, it, it just it's just this thing where, you know, Netflix decided to t- take a chance on something. It got a lot of good critical uh success. I like I don't know if it necessarily did well in terms of viewership, but uh, clearly, it did well enough that other streaming services decided to do the same thing. And in that same vein, just to bring it back to comics, comics did the same thing too, which was um, what we see now in the comics industry is people are veering away from uh, the big two and they're going to Image and they're going to TKO and they're going to Dark Horse or what other uh, companies that'll have them to tell their stories. And in some cases, it's it's a it's a circumstance where you know this was something that just happened to fall in a creator's lap but in other circumstance in other cases it's a circumstance where uh the creators have been holding on to this thing for a long time and they were just looking for the right uh publisher that would give them the chance to do it the way that they would want to do it so like if you're really looking for sci-fi comics right now you and you go out there there are a lot of different uh, places that you can go that aren't Marvel or DC because, quite frankly, those are genres that they've kind of ignored. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you guys brought up because, in a way, it kind of feels like the the history of science fiction in these different mediums, um, there's always like this pattern, right? Like in when you look at literature back in in like the 30s and and 40s and and those early days of the of the form uh maybe even earlier than that science fiction was kind of regarded as like pulp fiction right like it wasn't it wasn't respected or or respectable people who who wrote a lot of stories back in the days used um pen it was names. filler it was filler it was filler for like other stories. Like people would just get paid. Yeah. You know. A lot of them used pen names um, because they didn't want to tarnish their literary reputations when they wrote serious stories or whatnot. And then as, you know, as, as time has progressed um, up to today, there's, there's tons of science fiction literature. Uh, t- speaking of novels, particularly, um, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of stuff that gets recognized, gets a lot of, awards and and now gets adapted into really expensive uh television and film productions and when you when you think about uh science fiction in in tv and film even then right it's like that was a pretty niche genre to begin with for a while and then star wars kind of kicks open the doors um on for the film side and star trek on tv and like over the as the years progressed you see more and more of it and it's like now nowadays it's like you said we just get it's like an overabundance of of shows and 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 movies based on science fiction concepts now with, with comics pretty much the same thing right like 
back in the day, maybe in, I guess back in, in like the fifties, there were a good number of science fiction comics from EC and whatnot. And I, I suppose you could also make the case that superhero fiction is essentially a subgenre of science fiction. Yeah. But, but speaking of science fiction, speaking of science fiction in a broader general sense, it, it really does feel like today this era is like the golden age for science fiction comics. We're seeing more of that genre being attempted in the medium that we all love uh, now so more than ever. I, th- I think if I can make a comment about it, I think the biggest influence on what propelled science fiction to take more of a forefront than it did before is the advent of um, research in physics that happened at the early quarter of the century that pushed even to the 50s, the discovery of quantum mechanics, um, atomic physics, um, strange, bizarre things happening that people couldn't explain, but people were generally aware of, it, especially when they blew up the atomic bomb. Suddenly, everybody, everybody was aware of this. They see that there are these world-devastating weapons that exist out there, and I think it propelled people's imaginations. Um, I, I think, like, for example, I think things like Godzilla were influenced by, by notions of that. Um, mm-hmm. So... It really drove people like to this point of of like what else could be could we do? What else could be out there? What what forces could we be tampering with that could be problematic for us? Um, and I want to say two things that you you mentioned about um, science fiction movies getting high productions. They're making they're yet making yet another version of Dune. Um, it's supposed <laughs> to come right. out next year at some point. <laughs> but as for um, science fiction beginning as like this like low end form of literature that people hid away their actual name when public when publishing, what about authors like um, H. G. Wells and Jules Verne? Weren't they like authors from the eighteen hundreds? Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Those are probably some of the earliest writers who uh, contributed to the development of science fiction. And the impression I got, like maybe in the literary community, they were they were like looked down upon, but they were very popular with the masses. And themselves drove a lot of um, imagination for the what literally end, end up becoming science for us. Like yeah, astronaut suits were modeled by you know uh, the scuba suits in Jules Verne's you know Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, stuff like that. Well, I think what Drew was referring to was more of the pulp uh, sci-fi that was coming out in that era. I don't, I don't want to say what the fifties. Yeah, like I don't know, maybe starting in, in the thirties and forties. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's true. Like H.G. Wells, like no one looked at him and was like, what a hack. <laughs> <laughs> Did they? I don't, actually, I'm actually not sure. Because, uh, well, you know, people, people today look back on, on his works and they're like, oh, yeah, War of the Worlds of the Invisible Man. Yeah. You know, those are classics, right? But then, yeah. I don't know, at the time, was he respected? I, I haven't done the research. That's I don't true. remember. Also, Albert, the H and H.G. actually stands for hack. <laughs> hack G. Hack Wells. George Wells. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> that hurts. <laughs> so bef- before we uh really dive straight into the comics, um I do want to know your opinions in terms of uh like when you when you look for a science fiction story that, that you wanna uh, read or, or watch. Like what? What are the things that you guys personally look for? Like what? What's the thing that kind of grabs your attention? Um. Oh, go ahead, Zach. No, no, sorry. Go ahead, Albert. I uh, didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, no, no. 
Uh, I've go. been like <laughs> talking this whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll go last. Okay, all right, I'll go first then. Um, for me, a lot of times it's it's concept, just in terms of what initially catches my eye. Um, a lot of science fiction stories are sort of you can almost say like what if type things. It, it's always some sort of uh, some sort of hypothetical scenario, right? Uh, the Matrix, for instance, what if, you know, we were all like in this Descartes, like that in brain in the vat type deal where, you know, we're getting fed stuff from the outside, but we don't know it. And we're not conscious of the reality that's being manipulated around us. Or like, what if we have a bunch of killer robots that are designed by artificial intelligence in the future? And it happens to be our doomsday, right? What if we brought uh, dinosaurs back to life and kept them on an island, but then it got out of hand, right? So there's there's always sort of a concept that goes along with it. Um, so concept, theme, there's definitely a cool factor. I'm not going to lie. They, I mean, whenever I think anyone looks at sci-fi in terms of just what initially catches your eye, it's almost like, I hate to make the analogy, but it's almost like uh, relationships, right? Like, come on, guys can't lie, like what initially catches your eye, whether or not you know the girl or you're super into her, there's a level of physical attraction there, right? So same thing with sci-fi is there's kind of a cool factor with like, hey, maybe your thing is laser guns, maybe you like laser guns, maybe you like mechs. I tend to like mechs. I like anime and stuff like that and mm -hmm. flying cars and the Flash Gordon type stuff. Um, I think about something like Tron that has loads of cool factor that whole the whole concept is like eye candy you know yeah um so definitely so like concept theme um and a, li a little bit of cool factor although i think younger me was much more impressed with cool factor than older me is um if you dress it up and put a lot of bells and whistles on it it's it can still be eye candy but that doesn't necessarily make a good story so I tend to be drawn to things with, I guess, with uh, more levels of things that can keep my mind occupied or ponder on. Mm -hmm. um, a good example in terms of film, I think, I've already mentioned The Matrix, that is actually my favorite movie, but uh, another example in terms of film would maybe be something like uh, Interstellar or like Inception, where there's like layers of things going on or layers of themes being explored in the story. That just kind of forces you to think about um, think about things more closely or think about things in more detail even after the story is over, right? Like I want to continue to be getting something from this or be caused to think about the world that I think I know or think about reality a little bit differently. Um, there has to be like a, a takeaway or, you know, something I can feel like I didn't completely waste my time if I, you know, read this book or watched this movie or like read this comic book. So yeah. uh, substance, I guess you could say. Substance and depth. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what about you guys? Yeah, I think um, I think Zach said it in a far more articulate and eloquent way than I could. I was just going to say, like, I'm not... I'm not particularly... Uh, a profound guy and I can be honest about that like for me the draw is always or a lot of the times is going to be um, 
just the flash and you know just the uh just the cool stuff that you want to see again it's like zach was saying whether it be you know explosions or machinery or um well it's really those two things but (laughs) 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 so so um yeah so i i'd say that's that's the thing that gets you gets me in the door but it's not until i'm like sitting there and processing all of it that and like i've had a chance to kind of mull it over that i can draw from it more substantive things that probably have more um more meaning Mm -hmm. um I will, I I guess the other thing I'd add, uh, is the world building aspect of it, uh, is, is something that is also pretty eye catching. So, you know, when you do, what was that? When you do like space stories or, um, alternate dimensions or, you know, it just takes you to far off lands and introduces you to societies that you're not accustomed to. And that stuff is, it's just you know, food for the imagination. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think about stuff like, um, like Star Wars or like, uh, oh man, I'm forgetting the name of the movie right now, but it's, it's an older one, you know, with the replicants and the guys running around. Blade Runner. Runner. Yeah. Yeah. Just in terms of like, um, world building, that's definitely something that will draw me in. Or like Shane has mentioned, even like Dune, like, yeah. Like, it's just, if someone does a really great job of just designing a world and the various societies that inhabit it, you could lose yourself in it for, you know, the whatever period of time uh, that you're seeing it on the page, you know? Like, sometimes, if, if, uh, like, one example of someone who does just spectacular art for um, science fiction is Dustin Weaver. Like you can pull out a comic of his and he'll do like a splash page and you can just sit there and just stare at it for, you know, a few minutes and just kind of try to absorb every uh, inch of it. Yeah. And you're, you can look at an image like that and just imagine all of the potential stories contained within. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I I think definitely taking, taking your, your mind on, an adventure. I mean, obviously that's probably the goal of, um, you know, a lot of great literature, but with science fiction in particular, like seeing new worlds created that are appealing to you, uh, you know, that's, that's a huge draw. Like I think about some video games too, like the Mass Effect series, like that's something where they did a great job building the world and and making it look like a place you'd want to explore. And it has all the cool stuff with the with the machinery and the, yeah, yeah. and the guns and the women and all that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, dive into our recommendations then. And, and like in our previous recommendations episodes, each one of us will be sharing a recommendation. Um, so let, Albert, let's start with you. What's your what is your comic book science fiction recommendation? Okay, so I wanted to tell a very brief, I wanted to give a little bit of brief background information before I go into it, which was I initially wanted to do 
a different comic. I'm not going to mention it uh, or name it right now because um, I'm, I'm probably going to use it for something else. But, uh, you know, I, I was sitting there and thinking about what do I want to choose for a science fiction comic? And I, I, I think my initial decision lacked, although there were elements of science fiction to it, it was, I don't think the focus was science fiction. So I really wanted to choose something that was more science fiction heavy. Um, yeah. And so I decided to change my choice and, um, and I also wanted to pick something that was, uh, for the purpose of this podcast, I, I really want all of my, my picks in this series to be something where it could be a comic that someone could pick up never having had any exposure to comics and they'd be able to enjoy it for what it is and walk away with an appreciation for that particular genre as well as for comics as a medium. So for the, for my science fiction recommend, uh, recommendation, I choose The Surrogates. Uh, this was published from July 2005 to 2006. It was five issues long. It was uh, from Top Shelf Productions, written by Robert Vendetti, with art by Brett uh, Weldell. I believe I believe that's how he uh, pronounced, or that's how I'm pronouncing his last name. And mm-hmm. he, uh, he was the colorist for it as well. Um, hold on here. I wanted to give a brief description of it um so it's the the plot behind surrogates is it's it's a story that takes place in the not too distant future it's a story that isn't too different from our own actually it's um you know our our technology has progressed it's progressed forward and uh, we, we definitely have technology that uh, in the comic that we don't have now, but um, essentially what everyone has in the future is they have these artificial bodies called surrogates. So uh, what, what everybody does in the future is, well, not everybody, but a lot of people is they hook themselves up to these machines in their homes and artificial bodies of themselves go out into the world in their place. And um, and the thing about these bodies is people can design them however they want. So in, in essence, you can be the person you've always wanted to be is kind of the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Uh, so I was, I was looking up, um, Robert Vendetti and the surrogates online. And one of the things that he mentioned was um, that, and I thought this was a pretty interesting uh, tidbit. Vendetti was inspired to write the surrogates after reading Indra Sinha's book, the cyber gypsies about numerous individuals who lost their spouses or their job due to their addiction to the internet and their online personas. In an interview, he said, it dawned on me that, if you were somehow able to create a persona and send it out into the real world where it could go to work for you and run your errands and so on, then you would never have to go back to being yourself. And um, yeah, and I think that was a pretty interesting tidbit. Um, 
I want to give a little bit more background uh, to the story before I, I continue, but uh, basically what ends up happening in the story at the beginning is two of these surrogates are attacked by a mysterious character. And uh, what starts out as just a small crime uh, ends up, uh, they end up, uh, the detective who's on the case ends up unfolding this giant plot, essentially, uh, to destroy all surrogates from from that one particular instance. And so you're following the adventures of this cop in this world where that's inhabited by all these people who are, are essentially just in their artificial surrogate bodies. So not only are you watching this mystery unfold, but you're also watching how people are interacting as a result of this of these circumstances. Uh, and and we mentioned earlier when we were talking about science fiction about how um, I, I believe Shanus might have mentioned it earlier, but how like well Shanus and Zach uh, how science fiction when effective is meant to make you. It's meant to make you ponder humanity. It's meant to ask you about. Uh, it's it's meant to illuminate the possibilities, but I do think that the other aspect of good science fiction is it also makes you question the consequences of science fiction, and uh, I do think that the surrogates is a pretty relevant and interesting story. Uh, because it, it I, so I mentioned earlier that this book, uh, comic was written in the 2005-2006. So at this point, uh, as a society, we, we, we'd had the internet for a long while. Um, you know, maybe it wasn't new-new, but it was something where we've had it for a while and we were beginning to see how it was affecting the psyches of people as a mass. Uh, as far as I know, this, this comic book came out before the idea of something like a millennial. But I remember when, you know, when that buzzword started being thrown around that millennials were a thing, this was the first generation to be born fully, you know, in with, with to be born fully uh informed about the internet fully knowledgeable about the internet um i i think uh robert vendetti's take on the surrogates is is kind of a mirror on that idea you know um and even now like we're we're not at a point where we're seeing like cyborgs or androids or anything like that but <laughs> you know the the fact that everyone has avatars in cyberspace and you know there are a lot of people that even spend money on their avatars just to fashion them to be to look the way that they want um i i think it's really interesting i like again we're not quite at that place in the surrogates where uh people are I don't want to say damaged, but like, we're, but we're not quite at that place where the technology has affected people to the degree 
that it has in the surrogates, but um, yeah, it's an interesting way to look at where uh, where the possibility of that progression goes. Like one, so one of the things about the comic is a lot of people are withdrawn and they become shut-ins. Um, so they they every day they send out their artificial surrogate to go out into the world, and it gets to a point where uh, people that they work with, their so-called friends, don't even know who they're talking to. They've never even seen what the people look like uh, behind the surrogates, you know? And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, in addition to uh, the, the storytelling, I, I also did want to mention the art of the book. It's... I like it a lot. It's a lot of really thick lines and the storytelling is really interesting. Like they, I don't want to throw this around too flippantly, but it does kind of remind me of Watchmen in the sense that there's a lot of extra material that they put, put in there uh, in between the issues to flush out more of the discussion and more of the world. Yeah. The, and the end give, of each issue has a, has a text piece or something, something of that nature. Yeah. And, it, they're, you know, Robert Vendetti's probably not the first person to do that. I mentioned Watchmen, but it's, I think it's done pretty well. And I think uh, the context that it provides is really a lot of food for thought, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So, I remember uh, when, it, when I first encountered it, it, yeah, certainly it is. Any, I think anytime anybody does something like that in a comic, <laughs> we're always going to think about Watchmen because that's the most famous example of that trick being used. But yeah, in the surrogates, I think he did put his own stamp on it. Like it added a lot to uh, the building of, of his world building, you know, like I yeah. remember there was one issue that had a, uh, they made these fake advertisements for products that people in their future would, would buy. And yeah, like it just kind of makes it feel like they've put a really lot of thought into how they, uh, imagine this future society to be and like what kind of things would would uh, draw people's attention and, and that kind of stuff well and that's you know again to draw it back to real life which uh, is is the real interesting thing for me here but even now when you look at something like Fortnite, it, you'll see that i'm not going to say that they necessarily advertise it in the same way but the idea is very similar right it's like oh you can get these products for your fake person online yeah. you know these augments these you know virtual clothes or whatever yeah yeah so um i do think it's it's a it's a really uh good book it's five issues long and there's also a prequel called uh blood and iron i believe flesh and bone flesh and bone i'm sorry flesh yeah. and blown and um i think it what makes it especially accessible to people that are new to comics is that it's a self-contained story and it's just got a lot of uh, food for thought that you can just sit there and mull over. Um, it's not the kind of sci-fi where you're going to see too many explosions or action sequences. So, uh, you know, that that's... If you're the kind of person that's looking for that, uh, 
I, I would just tell you, you know, give it a chance. Uh, like it was uh, the, the other interesting thing that I found out about it was at the time that it was produced, the comics themselves weren't, weren't super popular. Like when, when the issues first came out, it even mentioned that like issue two only sold 2000 copies or something like that. Dang, 2000. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It wasn't until they, they made a movie and it got picked up by a studio that it became this, it, it just got notice. And, you know, I don't, this being a podcast about comics, you, I, I do, I don't want to spend too much time on movies or anything like that. So it, even though we've already spent a lot of time on movies, but, um, you know, I, I will say that the one good thing about the fact that it got picked up by a movie other than, you know, Robert Venditti getting whatever money he made was that uh, they pumped out a lot of these graphic novels and a lot of people were getting a hold of it. And, uh, you know, more people were reading it than, uh, than the single initially. Issues. Yeah. 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 So uh, I do think that was the, a great silver lining to it. Um, I feel like it's kind of been forgotten in recent years or yeah I don't think the movie did too well the movie didn't do too well and I think a lot of the movie the movie tried to sensationalize it and turn it into more of an action adventure murder mystery sort of thing and it from what I remember it it went away from a lot of the common exactly the story exactly exactly so um yeah i would recommend it to anyone who who just wants something that's a little thought-provoking and i do think that the art is beautiful in the book it's just it's very simple but the but the line work is just i don't know i just like the really thick heavy line work to it it just gives it a lot of depth you know yeah, and the coloring yeah. is really moody too. Yeah, yeah, I uh, forgot to mention. It. I, when like, I, it's I remember when simple, I first, but it's moody. Yeah, yeah. I think when I first saw the book, I like one of the first things I thought of was like, "Oh, this looks like Ben Temple Smith." Yeah, it, look, it looks a little yeah. like Ben Temple Smith and Bill Sinkovich. Yeah, it's kind it's, of th- in, in along those uh, aesthetics and yeah. sensibilities. I think it's a lot more defined or not maybe a lot but it's more defined than ben temple smith but the color palette is definitely similar to ben temple smith mm-hmm. and uh the line work or the figure work is maybe similar not quite the same but similar yeah totally yeah shanis zach have you guys ever read the surrogates or even watched the movie i guess are you guys familiar with the surrogates well, I just saw the movie. Honestly, I haven't, I didn't actually read the comic. I knew it was um, based on the comic. I did have a question for Albert, though, because I thought it was interesting, that angle that he was bringing up uh, concerning, I don't know how to say it, like uh, this, this idea or this concept of people just being so engrossed in, in their avatars and in these, um, you know, these lives that they're building for themselves. Uh, I guess in virtual reality or in, well, actually it's in our actual reality, but it's more like, you know, they're having these virtual interactions with each other. Um, yeah. You know, like we're saying, we, we don't see something like that directly happening now, but you do see kind of like echoes of it with people, I guess, Absolutely. getting disenfranchised, like 
looking at yeah. Facebook or trolls online or whatever, and the way that whole yeah. culture has evolved. Um, so the question is, Albert, what do you think the relevance is, say, in, I think you said 2005 or 2008 when it came out, as opposed to uh, how things have progressed since then? Would you say that, you know, would you say that it's more relevant or that you are seeing, I guess, stronger echoes of that now than you did back then? Or, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I do think that it's just as relevant. Um, I was like flipping through it earlier today and there was a scene in the prequel that I was looking at. It was Flesh and Bone. And this might be a thing where I might have to draw like a flow chart to get to, to the point. But um, I, I still think it's, it's worthy of uh, contemplation. But uh, in the prequel story, this, the story starts out with these three surrogates who are out on the town. They're kind of just doing their thing. And they come across a homeless man. And they beat the homeless man to death. And what the revelation is at the beginning of the story is that it's three, like, they're not teenagers. They might even be kids. They might even be like preteens or something like that. And what happened was they took their parents' uh, surrogates and they decided to go out on the town and just kind of do all this stuff. And then they, they, they were basically picking a fight with homeless guy and because they were, you know, kids and they were in these surrogate bodies, uh, they just kind of viewed this man, this homeless man with a detachment to the point where they felt comfortable beating him to death. And that isn't to say that we're in that place where that's what's happening to people. But I do think, especially now in 2020, looking at just how people have evolved with the internet, there, there's a, and this is just me, you know, uh, I forget what the term is, but this is just me, um, you know, soapboxing or whatever. But there, there does seem to be this sense that the internet gives people the means to detach themselves from other people. And as a result, the, the worst examples of the internet are just people just being the absolutely worst versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. With without any fear of repercussions, yeah, re- yeah, repercussions exactly. So I do think that that was an interesting thing that he picked up on. That it, it's hard for me to go back to 2005 and look at when the book was coming out and to look to see if that's what internet culture was like at the time. I think I, I think it was still was bad. Always like this. It's always been abusive. <laughs> That's true. There's always been dregs, but yeah. in 2005, there was no Twitter. So it wasn't yeah. quite as vet- you bad. Yeah, you couldn't directly send, like, do a drive-by <laughs> message at someone. At best, you could go on a message board, but you kind of get lost in the noise, right? <laughs> so, true, um, true. so, yeah, like, so that's, that's a perfect example. The, the technology has progressed where we got something like Twitter and I don't think we became better as people for it, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and again, that isn't to say that we're in a place where um, 
we're so detached that your average person, if given the opportunity, can detach himself so much from humanity that he can casually kill another person. But I do, yeah, I, I do think that there are connections there between what uh, Robert Vendetti was doing in 2005 to where we are now. Um, yeah, yeah, so I, I do think it's pretty interesting so stuff. I'm not, I'm personally not familiar with surrogates. I never read the, the comic book nor seen the movie. Yeah. I just read a quick synopsis. Um, it almost, I mean, again, I can preface, I didn't read this, but it almost sounds, or it sounds very similar in flavor to like Blade Runner in terms of um, this, it seems like the surrogates aren't necessarily really human beings. Yeah, I didn't want to give too much of it away for people to, who wanted to pick it up and read it. But uh, the story follows a cop who, who at the beginning of the series uh, interferes with a attack on two other surrogates. And then his surrogate body gets damaged and he ends up going out into the world in his real flesh and blood body. And he's trying to figure out who this mysterious figure is who's attacking surrogates. And mm. as uh, the mystery unfolds, he finds out that there's a bigger plot behind it. And well, I'm I'm gonna ask Drew. Do you think I should just kind of give away what the bigger plot is, or should I just leave it to the imaginations of the people? Uh, you can leave it to their imagination. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the bigger there's a bigger plot that comes out that's involved with. Uh, I'll try to put this in semi vague terms, but um. It's it's basically someone taking his ideological stance on surrogates and he's going to commit a crime that will impact society on a large scale, especially seeing as how it, it'll impact society, it'll impact all the surrogates on a large scale. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's that's that is the the point. So the the it's like a dark version of Wally. No, <laughs> I, I um, kind yeah, of. I don't. It kind of is, is right because, like, I I think about how in in Wally, uh, the the Pixar film, all the human beings that are still alive in that era, they're all basically like little Jabba the Huts, right? Like they're all yeah massive people because they've grown so used to the comfort of robots serving their whims that they never have to do anything for themselves, so they're just falling into really unhealthy uh, lifestyles. Yeah, in the surrogates, people who use surrogates are so accustomed to having their surrogates do everything. Like they just stay in their home. They don't yeah. exercise or, or eat well. Their surrogates look like beautiful people and they're the ones that are representing the real person going out into the world. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, when you when you make those connections, I I could see it. I guess Yeah, I I guess that's a a fair uh, comparison without giving away too much about the surrogates. It's funny that Shanus brought that up because I never would have thought of Wally and the surrogates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a twisted mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's true. It's a really good connection. I I wouldn't have caught that before. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, you guys have any other questions, or do you want to move on to the next review? Do you think it's worth watching the movie? Stars so, here's um, 
Nah. <laughs> okay, well, like, you're just strictly about the comic then. Uh, here's what I'd say. I, I do think there's value in watching the movie after I've read the comic of only because it gives me more content to um, kind of mull over to think about. Because mm-hmm. I do remember watching uh, the movie and they made choices. They made some pretty big choices that were that were different enough from the comic. And it put me in a position where I thought about why those choices were made and what, what reason that changing them or like how in changing them, it affected the story overall. And it made me consider like what it actually did bring to the story. So I I think just as a matter of comparison that, that it gives you, something to think about here here's <laughs> here's a funny little or i think it's a funny little comparison but uh it's kind of like the justice league movie and what we got was the joss whedon Zack snyder mishmash and you know it, it did not do well at all it didn't get a lot of love <laughs> and and the thing is at the time um that the Justice League movie came out, people were already pretty down on the Zack Snyder films, right? They, like, I think Man of Steel was kind of tepid, and then Batman versus Superman was at least critically, it wasn't too impressive. A lot of people had not so good things to say about it. And then Justice League came out and it was just bad, and a lot of people behind it were like, release the Snyder cut! Because, you know, that is the true version of the movie. That is the holy grail of the movie that must be. And now that they've released it... it, it they're planning to release it. Now that they're planning to release it, we're kind of in this environment where, like, people are celebrating, you know, that, that specific, specific group of people are celebrating, that specific fandom is celebrating, and they're talking about how, like, it almost feels like, even before the movie comes out, it almost feels like they are saying that this is going to be redemptive this is going to be a great movie and again they forget that the other two were pretty bad <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I, you know? I found the whole movie really comical because it's been going on for a while now yeah and i i, I was thinking the same thing that you just expressed which is like zach that are completely shat on superman yeah and and batman and then superman yet again yeah and and I'm sure there, there, there are people who will say, like, those are great movies because all they want is, like, special effects. They want to see Batman and Superman duking it out for no reason whatsoever just because it's on the screen. They want to see these guys being badasses. <laughs> but story-wise, they're both boring. And you just... You, I, I think I literally, like, had this look on my face. You guys can see it, but nobody else can. So I was like, it's like... Like, I, just, I was like, I'm just so utterly confused and held by these decisions that Zack Snyder made. Yeah. To the point where I think the worst part, at least, I know you had your review on Wonder Woman, but like the worst part of Wonder Woman for me was the last 10 minutes during that battle with Ares. Yeah. Um, and you could tell the special effects were influenced by the Stag Snyder notion of like what action should be. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But before then, the action was actually really like, I felt artistic and beautifully and well choreographed. Like it was, it was kind of clean in that sense. Yeah. And so you get this Justice League and yeah, it's not a good movie. But I can't imagine a world where the Zack Snyder cut would ever be better. Like, like I just like I don't even care. I don't understand why there's this movie. Like, who cares? Yeah, 
Like, yeah, it's it's a bad movie. It's not going to be any better. Just l- let it be. Like, yeah. we don't need another Justice League movie version to come out. Let's let's maybe move on to something better, a new a new movie. Let's just bury it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's that's where the comparison breaks down. Like, I don't want them to you know, read the book and bury it because this is a case where the original version is better than the movie than what what the masses got, right? So what I'm saying is hopefully you read the book and then you watch the movie and it gives you something to compare it to and it gives you something to mull over and it gives you um, context to appreciate the things that they did change or to appreciate the things that they took out for what they were, for what so, they did bring. I, I am curious, like, so how do you feel about, in terms of the comic story, the, the, how the plot was threaded? And since I haven't read it, I can't, I don't have any perspective here, but as along with how the characters that played a main role in that progression, how the revolution was handled. Um, I think the main, I forget the main character's name. Hold on, give me a second. I, I have it up right here. But, just think um, of him as the cop. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, hold up. Let's uh, call him Deckard. <laughs> uh, Harvey Greer, okay? So the main guy, his name is Harvey Greer, and he's, I think he's a pretty good, I'm going to use the word, but he's a pretty good surrogate for us, the reader, because he takes the view, he, so he, He's a guy who lives in this world. He's the guy who lives in a world where surrogates are a thing, where every this is the norm. But he, you could tell that when the body breaks down and he goes out into the world, you could tell that there's a part of him that's itching to go out into the world and to be this person again, to be flesh and blood and to interact with the world in spite of all his flaws, in spite of all the things about him. And, and uh, I, I do think that as a character, he's flushed out pretty well. Like, even though there's all this, all this story about the, um, the mystery that's happening, like, you're watching him as an older man trying to chase down a robot, and you're seeing him deal with his body breaking down and with him getting aches and pains, but he's kind of embracing it. And on top of that, in terms of, like, the 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 personal story that happens around him, he, when you follow him home to his personal life, what you find out is not only is he a surrogate out in the world all the time, when he gets home, his wife is there and she is constantly stuck in her room. So even within his own home, he is only able to see his wife through her surrogate. And he hasn't seen her or made love to her or been with her in like, I I forget what, span of time he mentions in the comic but substantial amount of time it was a substantial amount of time for someone that you uh for your spouse supposedly loved right (laughs) exactly for your spouse so uh like that was another really interesting added element to the story it's just how yeah just how much these surrogates have infected them right down to even their interpersonal interactions you know so that even in the one place where you would expect yourself to have um the freedom to be yourself you're not because you're just the they're everyone is just so afraid of being of showing all their blemishes of being judged to the point where 
yeah, the, the, even even in the confines of their own home, they're they're not even willing to be true to themselves. It was a pretty. I, I that was one story element that always stuck out to me. It was a pretty. It was extreme, but it was. Uh, it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I I think that element of the story was probably the emotional core of the story for me. Yeah. Because definitely the plot is compelling and it just makes you want to keep on reading and see how how Greer is gonna uh you know solve this case and also you know there's all the the commentary the, the social commentary just with the metaphor of the surrogates in place but the emotional heart of the story yeah. is still like this normal dude who who sees the world around yeah. him and, and recognizes that there is something fundamentally right. wrong with the way that <laughs> society continually chooses to operate it's like the world has been given this option and then this option has suddenly become so pervasive that it's really the only choice for a lot of people and they can't live without it they're just dependent on it and it has really caused it's caused society to lose a lot of its humanity yeah absolutely um there are other elements to the story that I didn't really mention. Uh, one of the suspects, one of the main suspects throughout the course is there's a man who uh, he starts his own community of people that have rejected these surrogates and he's operating uh, in this not a gated community, but like a commune or something, right? It's like exactly a commune. That was what I was looking for. He has a commune where he's kind of holding on to these old ways. And so it doesn't just give you this one perspective where like, oh, surrogates are bad, but there, this guy was also an extremist on his end where um, it, it kind of provides the counterpoint. But at the same time, uh, he's not entirely wrong either, you know? It's just, it's all very nuanced. It's all yeah. very nuanced. Yeah. Did that... Go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go ahead, man. What were you going to say? No, no, no. I was going to see if that was, uh, if that answered Shanice's question. Yeah, that definitely more than answered my question. Yeah. What were you going to say, Drew? I was, I was going to say, I once had a small interaction with Robert Venditti. Really? Uh, yeah, so Robert Venditti... Uh, as you mentioned, this this comic was published by Top Shelf. Yeah. And back in the day, he actually used to be a Top Shelf employee. Oh. Uh, I don't remember what his title or his job function was, but this one time, this was probably before he became a big writer for DC Comics, before he started writing all the Green Lantern stuff and, and Flash or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I remember I, I ordered something from Top Shelf because sometimes they would have these sales. And I remember I ordered something. Uh, and then I guess they would send me, they sent me a, a confirmation for my order via email. And it was from Robert Venditti at Top Shelf or whatever the email address was. And, and at the time I, I was like, wait, why is he like handling customer service stuff <laughs> for, for Top Shelf? But at at the same time, it's like, that's not a really common name. And he did write his comic that was published by Top Shelf. So I'm going to just like reply to this customer service confirmation email and just tell him, 
hey, are you the Robert Venditti who wrote The Surrogates? Because that's awesome. if you are, that's a really great piece of work and I really enjoyed it and, you know, all this and that. So I sent that email and he actually replied to me and he was like, wow, thanks for, you know, like recognizing that. A lot of people don't, don't make the to, connection. Yeah, a lot of people <laughs> don't make the connection. So you just seem appreciative of it. And that was cool, man. That's, my, that's my one Robert Venditti story. That's cool. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird because it'd be like, you know, if Jeff Bezos was writing <laughs> customer service letters <laughs> from Amazon, you know? <laughs> Not quite like that, but, you know, it's, it's just yeah. It's yeah, funny. Totally. <laughs> it's like DC hired Brian Michael Bendis to, to pack comics that they're going to ship over to the retailers. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're really getting their money's worth out of him over there. <laughs> awesome, man. So The Surrogates by Robert Venditti and Brett Weldell. Yep. Got to check it out. All right. Moving on. Um, I believe, Zach, it is on you. What you got, Zach? Hit us. Hit us <laughs> with your best shot. <laughs> uh, we'll see. But, uh, yeah, my, my pick, and it was a tough one because there's, there's a lot of just really great stuff out there. Um, I may actually wind up giving an honorable mention at some point uh, later on in the podcast to, to a few of those things. Uh, the one that really stuck out to me uh, for the moment um, is Run, Love, Kill by uh, Eric Canetti. Um, I actually have the issues here. Let me take a look at the creative team on that. So the story was uh, by John Tsue. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically the arts by Eric Canetti, but the color, lettering, and design. So that's basically everything else. Oh, he did uh, all of that of- himself too? Uh, Leonardo Olea. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, covers by uh, Manu Fernandez. Um, so all those things are actually significant. I'm going to be kind of giving a nod to each of those guys because they really knocked it out of the park as far as the art is concerned. Uh, but starting out with the synopsis of the story, it's actually a fairly simple story uh, in terms of being In terms of what? You guys still there? Hello? I lost Zach. I can hear him. Oh, okay. I think it might have just been my connection. Oh, okay. Keep going, sorry. Sorry. Okay, yeah, no worries. Um, Yeah, so the synopsis. So the girl's name is Rain. Um, She is, she's on the run, basically. Um, she's she's ex-military. The way the story story starts out, um, she wakes up in some sort of strange government facility or like uh, military facility. Basically, fights her way out, and uh, she's it picks up a little bit later on, and she's basically on the run from these people who are trying to catch her. Um, as the story progresses, you learn more about what her past is and why she's on the run from these people but then you start to learn more about the character as well. Um, She starts to change uh, in terms of what she values and and why she values those things. Um, And it actually culminates this particular arc um, with her, instead of running all the time, learning how to stand up basically and, and face her fears. It's kind of a story of, not exactly a coming of age story, but it has some similarities to where 
she starts out with kind of a more immature mindset and winds up with a more mature one. Um, I will give a brief caveat here and say that the, the arc, although it's a really good one and it runs for four issues, it was actually never finished. So, uh, you know, if, if Mr. Kennedy ever gets a hold of this, please finish your story, sir. I would, I would like to know the end of it. <laughs> um, but for the, for the four issues you've got, it's just a uh, stellar story, stellar artwork. Uh, I talked about the cool factor before. It's just bursting with that. It's awesome. Um, but it's a really well-told story, super entertaining. It's a good read. Um, like I said, it's four issues long, so it's also not super time-consuming. And you can literally just pick up the four issues without knowing anything about comics or Run, Love, Kill and just get into it and enjoy it for what it is. Is Run, Love, Kill the sequel to Eat, Love, Pray? <laughs> Eat, Pray, Love. Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a wild guess and say no on that one. <laughs> so how did you uh, come across this comic? Um, so the story for that is kind of simple. Uh, you gave it to me. Oh yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It must have left a big impact on you. (laughs) No, it was, it was part of a stack of like, so, so for anyone who doesn't know, Drew obviously like gets around a lot, hits up like a lot of cons and comic shops and whatever, but being the uh, great friend that he is, whenever he finds something that he thinks I'll be interested in, he just comes back with like stacks of comics and it's just like, here, check this out, read this. So that happened to be in one of the stacks that uh, he gave me. And it just, I don't know, it just really caught my attention. And it's been like a splinter in my mind ever since. I always go back to it and just read it again every now and then. Yeah, I figured you would really dig the artwork. Mm. Eric Canetti does some... Uh... He's got a really cool style. It's like, can't really think of too many other people who, who draw like that. Oh yeah, the, the artwork's incredible, man. It reminds me of, um, you know, like Eon Flux or uh, Max or like those, those MTV cartoons that used to come, back, come on back in the day. Like it's got sort of that uh, elongated design form and the way that he handles the shadows, uh, the way that he handles the lines and the characters on the page. Um, yeah, it's, it's very much, I don't want to say stylized, but it's, it's in a visual sense, it's almost musical. There's a, there's a, a rhythm or a way that he exaggerates the rhythms, uh, on the characters and on the backgrounds, especially when the characters are in motion, um, that sort of exaggerating and pulling and tweaking just at the right spots. Uh, it's, it's really good stuff. It's really special stuff. Um, also, I, Another thing that really, really caught my eye in terms of the art, I mean, everything, like the colors and all that, but the pacing is pretty incredible. I mean, it literally, the story literally starts out with the metronome and it's like, it's almost like watching a movie, right? So you, you, the first page is like, it's very cinematic. It's all the, they're all uh, long shots or like the the longer panels, almost like you're watching widescreen, right? Mm -hmm. And it starts out with the metronome, then it flashes like Image Comics presents, and then the metronome ticks back, and then you get the name in the credits, and it ticks back and forth again. And so there's this sense of like, boom, 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 boom. Like he establishes a beat or a rhythm, 
and actually the rhythm is interwoven with the main character who like as a little girl part of what she does is like play violin she's trained in music so it starts with a metronome which ties into the character which ties into the rest of the story because it's juxtaposing the character when she's a girl versus the character when she's an adult and trying to escape from this facility and so all these things are interwoven and it's this sort of like lyric like rhythmic cinematic experience that you get that just draws you straight in it's incredible because like i said you can i can sort of describe it as musical but it's it's almost like music for your eyes like you can't hear anything but you just get a sense of that you get a sense of the rhythm you almost want to hear something with your ears by looking at it with your eyes if that makes sense yeah that's a pretty fascinating description comparing printed art on the page to to music and lyricism and, and rhythms. It, it feels like something that as a reader, I, I truly have to, you know, experience it firsthand. It's like the more you describe something in those terms, the, the more the more the rest of us have to, you know, hold it ourselves so we can look at it and, and experience it. It's like really tough just to I don't know. I guess it feels like a a lot of comics don't really touch on like, I mean, obviously there's comics about music, but it's hard to think of a comic that I would instinctively describe as uh, rhythmic or, or something uh, along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. And actually that, that concept or that theme of, of the metronome, and musicality is actually a theme that I find sort of woven throughout the book. I'm actually looking at the first issue here. And then if I look at the final issue in the arc, the fourth issue, um, it almost comes full circle because it goes back to that same instant in time that she's remembering in the first, in the first issue. Um, and I don't want to give too much away because obviously this is like the end issue, but it does return to that same theme of sort of, uh, musicality of of that rhythm that's being established um, using the character and using something that's a part of her to sort of build it into the design of the, the actual panels or the stories themselves. So the actual panels, while I'm getting into it, um, most of them uh, are, I guess, I mean, if you were to, to correlate it to uh, to film would be like sort of like widescreen but um, it's, it's laid out on a grid and the grid is actually used uh, very, you can just tell it's just handled by a pro. Like Kennedy's really, really good with that. He breaks the moments down into the exact beats that they need to be in. And the way that he, the way that he pauses or stretches time when he needs to stretch it and gives you more of a staccato rhythm when you need to have it uh, is just, there, it's just a mastery of storytelling. It's a mastery of craft that I'm seeing there that stands out to me in a way that doesn't for for a lot of other for a lot of other artists. A lot of artists are, are really good, um, but his sense of pacing stands out to me uh, above most of the others that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Are there any uh, specific highlights or specific moments in the comic that really? grabbed your attention or, or resonated with you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. 
there's um there's that scene that I was talking about where they go back to that theme of the violin uh, mm-hmm. in the fourth issue, because by the time you hit the fourth issue, you've already seen this scene, you know what it is, but then it fills in a little bit more information. You get to see the part that you didn't see before. Uh, and that's the part without giving away too much that, that really defines this character um, and really stretching out and freezing those moments in time. Uh, it's, it's, super impactful because it's like it brings everything full circle and it ties up all those loose ends in a way that just really hits you i mean if he had just given all that to you in the first issue it wouldn't have meant nearly as much as like taking that journey with the character and then by the time you hit the fourth issue there's all that weight behind it and you just get that punch and then it goes on with the rest of the story where it's just like yeah you you filled in this backstory to the character that you didn't have Yeah, that always feels good when you see something symmetrical like that, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's a, I hate to say it, it's, it's kind of a Christopher Nolan-y type thing. Um, I know he's not the only one who does that, but he's one of the major ones that comes to mind right now with like, you know, kind of starting something in the middle and then you branch out and see how the character got there and then bring the whole thing like full circle. Um, another scene that stood out to me was just a cool scene that I really enjoyed. Again, there's there's tons of cool factor in the comic. Um, one of the scenes is she's on the run and she's in a club. She's, she's in this uh, nightclub or something with some friends. And it's actually the night before she's gonna attempt to escape the city that she's in. Um, the city that she's in, uh, all, the, all the citizens are restricted and like heavily monitored. So you can't travel unless you have the proper, um, you know, the proper papers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, she's going to escape, though, illegally, because she's on the run from these guys. But, you know, she's going to have one one last night on the town before she gets out of there. So she's in this club. She's partying it up. She's with her friends, a bunch of drugs, a bunch of pills and all that. And the way that that's done is super interesting because you see her go from normal to starting to get a little bit buzzed to starting to trip out a little bit. But in the middle of all this, of course, these guys show up looking for her. And they wreck the club, they start to kill people, um, and they just start to come after her. And they show up, like, full battle gear, all the weapons, all the robots, all that, and basically wreck the club trying to get to her, and she has to, she has to get away from them. So you get to see a glimpse of, like, the lifestyle, the technology, um, sort of a, almost like a little slice of life type thing before this whole thing starts to unfold. And then even after it unfolds, you see the technology they're employing trying to catch her. And then some of the technology that she steals to try and get away from them. It's just, it's really cool stuff. It's, if nothing else, is a treat for the eyes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. It's like, it's got that style, stylistic coolness that you were referring to earlier. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, Kinetti has a really unique sense of design when it comes to uh, the the machinery and the technology that's being used, um, it's it's a little bit organic. Uh, it looks a little uh, '90s influenced with the with the way that it has the the different pieces and the different shapes put together. I can see sort of echoes in that, um, but it's it's just it's really cool. It's just really well put together. His sense of design. Were you about to say something, Albert? 
Yeah, I was going to ask, um, Panetti isn't a name that's too familiar to me. I don't, like, I'm not, it's, uh, if he's from comics, it's not a name that I recognize. Like, you wouldn't have to know. Um, some of his like, other stuff? Yeah, some of his other stuff or what his background might be, would you say? So, as of now, um, he has an Instagram. Um, I think it's like Eric Kennedy at Instagram or whatever. Uh, he does a lot of work for video games and, and other media now. Mm. I think around the time that he did Run, Love, Kill, he had, he had dabbled in comics and some stuff previously to that as well. Run, Love, Kill was actually the first time that he popped up on my radar. Mm. Um, I had even heard about it on a podcast a little bit before then, but I never had the chance to read it until oh. Drew got it for me. That's cool. So actually, actually, Drew, I think you might know a little bit more about his previous stuff before that, huh? Yeah, I do know about his other comics that he's done. Maybe, well, I can't say I know all of his comics, but I first discovered him because he did some comics with Joe Casey. Oh, okay. Yeah, one of my favorite writers. So back in, I think it was either the really late 90s or early early 2000s, uh, when Joe Casey was uh, doing a run on uh, Mr. Majestic for Wildstorm Comics, Eric Canetti came in and he did, I think, a three-issue story arc and they must have uh, worked well together. They might have even done an issue of Superman. Like he might have done an issue of Superman when Joe Casey was writing it, Adventures of Superman, I think. I could be wrong though. But the other big thing that he did with Joe Casey was he did uh, an Iron Man miniseries called Enter the Mandarin. Oh. Yeah. He did that? Yeah, that was Eric Canetti. That is dope. I yeah. like that comic. That was yeah. a really cool looking comic. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. one of the best looking Iron Man comics we've ever had. Yeah. And yeah, that was him. Yeah. But but I think if if you look at his early comic book art, like if you look at that Mr. Majestic stuff he did and then look at um the Iron Man story and then look at Run Love Kill, it's 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 crazy to see the progression cuz cuz I remember the first time I saw his stuff in in the Mr. Majestic comic, I was like this is confusing to me. Like I don't, I think it was something about like the the weight of all his lines. It it it, it looked like something. It looked like art that would be hard to tell what's in the foreground and what's in the background if it wasn't for the coloring, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And but then once he once he did Iron Man, I was like, oh, this looks like a totally different. Well, not totally different. Like you could still see some of the same uh, flourishes, but it, like his Iron Man stuff was, I thought like so much uh, more impressive. Um, mm. it, was, it was so good that it actually made me go back and dig out the Majestic comics that I had been confused by. And I was like, okay, now I think I kind of see what he's doing. You know, like I'm, I'm able to appreciate it more. And then uh, now that Zach's been talking about Run, Love, Kill, I'm probably going to go grab my Iron Man by mm. Eric Canetti just so I can look at it. <laughs> well, when I think of the art from Enter the Mandarin, like for people who are listening, like, I can only describe it as it's flat, but then it's so dynamic at the same time, right? Uh, like mm-hmm. I'm, I could be wrong in not or in my description of it, but that's at least how I remember it. It's it. I don't know. I, I, part of me wants to say it kind of reminds me of like cave paintings or like graffiti or something like that. You know, just the 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 cubic. Like just how square everything was or yeah, like used, all the sharp angles. Yeah, he used a lot of sharp angles in his art. Yeah, but it was super cool. Like it's, 
It wasn't like anything. It's not like a conventional comic, you know? Yeah. yeah. It, it's it's one of those comics that you're almost shocked that Marvel published it because yeah. it doesn't, it's not like you're, it's not a jobber comic, you know? No, sir. You ain't just some no, dude sir. that they picked off off the street to draw just like any of the other hundred guys they got in their stables, man. That, and that's one of the things you got to love about Joe Casey is because he always loved working with artists that have a distinct style. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool uh, how you've described the progression. That makes me want to go back and look at that because sometimes um, you'll see an artist who like either they have potential or you're just like, wow, this is kind of jumbly. This is kind of a mess or whatever. But then you see them a few years later and it's like they just something happens, like some sort of a light bulb come, comes on. They yeah. hit that stride and they just take off. Like, I love seeing that. Yeah. I have the Majestic Issues by Joe Casey, but I've never read Enter the Mandarin nor Love Run Kill. But now I'm, I'm really intrigued to see all three of them and see how the art evolves. Totally, man. And kind yeah. of have your experience here where it's like, if I'm confused by the art at first, looking at his later evolutions, then seeing what he was trying to do with this first version of, of his style. It, yeah, it, almost, yeah. it almost sounds like he was just playing with his own art form through Majestic and trying to find his what he wanted to do with his art. Yeah. Which I think it, it's cool. It's like it's almost like tasting wine over the course of different years and seeing how it, 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 it ages. Yeah. You get yeah. different flavors and you try to find the right peak time to say, ah, that was the year. <laughs> yeah, totally. It, yeah. I just wish he had done more comics, you know. He, I guess he's got to have like some other day job that, um, you know, that has his attention because yeah. I'm really not sure what other comics he's done. I was going to say his art, looking at it and, you know, feel free to disagree, but it, it kind of reminds me of like a Damien Scott almost. Yeah, know? I can see yeah. that. Especially because uh, you, th- you said earlier that you saw like a graffiti art style influence on Eric Canetti. And that's something I definitely see in, as an influence in Damien Scott's style too. Yeah, but I f- sure. feel like Damien Scott where... He, he's more likely to use a lot more um, like curves, more curves. And, and round yeah. edges as opposed to the sharp edges and angles exactly. of Kinetti's style. Yeah, definitely. That was a good, good observation. But yeah, but Damien Scott is another dope artist, man. I love his stuff cool. too. His stuff is sick, man. Very so sick. wait, what's, what's the main thing uh, Damien Scott's worked on? He had one issue of Solo, and I know he, I just looked him up. He did a bunch of covers for Raven. Uh, there was a, like a Raven miniseries, but did he also work on Batgirl? That's Batgirl is the comic that he's best known for in terms yeah. of uh, having an ongoing run on something. Yeah, uh, he did a run on Batgirl, uh, the character Cassandra Kane yeah. back in the early two thousands. I think he did at least maybe like the first twenty four or thirty issues or so. Uh, yeah. and I actually have that run, and I'm it's something that I'm always going to keep because it's, it's great. Like when you see the, his early issues, it's a little bit more uh, like conventional. Uh, I mean, you can still see little bits of his style here and there. Yeah. But, but uh, by the, when you get towards the end of it, it, it really turns into something that is, um, you know, closer to what we think of when we see him now. I was going to say like, I will, when we dig through quarter comics, I've come across, the um the marv wolfman maxi series which is like 12 issues and i can't say that i have a lot of affection for the work of marv wolfman uh and 
Damien Scott didn't draw the interiors of the book as far as I can tell. But when I look at those covers and I'm holding them there and I'm like, man, this is for a quarter. I'm always kind of tempted to buy it just for the cover. Yeah. <laughs> Might Damien's, have to do it next time. Yeah. Damien Scott work isn't something that like that bat, bat woman, bat girl, bat, bat girl. It's, it's not something that's collected as far as I can tell. It's sort of stuff that's been lost. It's kind of been forgotten because yeah. that character has been kind of forgotten. Exactly. Uh, I mean, back in the early 2000s, they did make some trade paperbacks, but even those trade paperbacks skipped some yeah. issues, and I don't think they ever completed the entire run. Yeah. But his, I was, was going to say, that if you just wanted the covers, what you could do is strip off 20 covers you like, and put them together and call it a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. We uh, we are not about abusing comics here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, or you can see it as liberating the cover from a bad story. <laughs> <laughs> There is that one issue of Solo that Damien Scott did. I would recommend yeah. anyone to look look for that. Just, get that one issue or just get Solo the Omnibus. Yeah. I think Damien Scott, he, he's another one of those guys who kind of, uh, I think he's got other stuff that he does besides comics. Yeah, he's um, not primarily a comics guy. Yeah, if I remember correctly, I think, I think after he did that Batgirl stuff, I think he actually moved to Japan and, and did some art there. Uh, might have even worked for some manga uh, publishers and, and did some stuff there. Nice, um, nice. Just did like some commercial art as well, I think. Yeah. Uh, I follow him on Instagram. You should check out his stuff there. He still posts a lot of cool comic book art on his Instagram. But I, I really would love to see him come back and do, uh, you know, like a series or something. Yeah. I mean, those Raven comics weren't too long ago. They were fairly recent i want to say maybe in the past five years or something like that but they're just covers so i mean they're, yeah. it's still nice to look at but it'd be cool to have them you know do the interiors on a series or something yeah so if anybody is listening anybody who has the power to make it happen damien scott and eric canetti we need more comics from you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's like you mentioned earlier the run love kill it's it was never completed, right? Half done, apparently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, yeah. they finished that first arc. And I, I'm assuming from stuff that I've read before and kind of interviews that he's been on, um, he had planned at some point to make more. And then, I don't know, like life happened and he just kind of hopped off that. And people kept asking him about it. And he was like, well, no, I'm doing this other stuff now. So yeah. I don't know if he's, he's interested in making more at some point. Um, there hasn't been any indication as far as I know uh, in the recent past that he's interested in doing it again. But I don't know, man, like I would, I would love to see him at least just like finish that arc and like, if he could finish that and like never look at it or think about it again, that's fine. I just want to know how the story ends. That's all I'm asking. Don't leave us wanting more. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine he, he probably does want to finish it, but I mean, I can't imagine that being a combo creator when you're just doing one off creative things are as that lucrative of a career that due to finances or other or other life concerns that he just had to push it aside and it may be the reason that why he's not responding to any anybody's requests is because the moment he opens that that channel then he kind of opens up to like this line of communication that he doesn't want to even tamper with that he's just too busy doing whatever he's doing right now but yeah yeah that's that's completely his call though i mean he's the creator of it so if he prefers to do something else okay, if he wants to get back to it at some point, 
that's great. I mean, like, I'm not going to chase the guy down, but it's just We're like, not going to hold his family hostage yeah. until he finishes a comic. <laughs> I'll ju- I was just curious. So I went online to look at, like, um, Love Run Kill, and there were, like, different message boards where people were, like, plashing, like, why does he respond to these inquiries? Why does he tell us what he's going to do? And it's like, he doesn't owe you a response. He's got his yeah, life exactly. to Totally. Fans totally. can be so self-entitled sometimes. Yeah, like, again, we're going to use this as a moment to get in a soapbox, but you know what? Just, I know you love his work, but don't harass the man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't be like those those fans of George R.R. R. Martin who harass him for not finishing his story yeah. before the TV series. <laughs> he don't owe you nothing. Nobody yeah. owes you nothing. <laughs> so what if it takes him like 11 years to write a novel? Yeah. And what if he never does finish it? Like, yeah. Fine, you bought his dolls before. Doesn't mean you have like some stake in his in his creation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Your book, you enjoyed it. Good for you. Yeah. Well, newsflash. Be happy for the things you that you get, man. Yeah. <laughs> usually, harassing a creator is not the way to get them to finish the work that you want them to do. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Harassment has never gotten me a date, and it's never finished the comic. <laughs> <laughs> Let that be a lesson. <laughs> Words harassment bad <laughs> the, the sad thing is though Albert man harassment did get people the Snyder cut it did and huh. uh, you know true uh, yeah I mean it, Albert you can harass me anytime you want I will I'll, I'll make it a point to send you something after this podcast <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a dead fish wrapped in newspaper and just nice. be like, I'm thinking of you. I was thinking more of something like, like you know, lamb chops. <laughs> yeah, like, not. I, I don't want to veer away too much from the topic of this podcast, but, you know, don't let the example of the Snyder Cut embolden you to think that you can be a verbal terrorist and think that you can get what you want, like... There's plenty of jerks in the world. Don't just just don't add to it. Come on, people. Where you sense at, people? <laughs> For those of you that are listeners of this podcast, it is not gutterific. It is not gutterific at all. <laughs> Harassment it, is not gutterific. Yeah, that's we're working on a T-shirt. That's gonna be a T-shirt. I, I kind of want to start a movement where we harass um, <laughs> Frank Herbert for not finishing his Dune series ideas. Wait, isn't he dead? dead? Exactly. Okay. (laughs) You mean I've been sending letters to a grave this whole time? No wonder he never finished it. What a jerk! (laughs) How dare he die before he finished the story that I wanted to Selfish (laughs) bastard! I mean, it's definitely dampened my uh, my quality of life since I can't get more good Dune books. I know his son's been co-writing the other ones, but, you know, it's not Frank Herbert. I, I don't think talent works that way. It's, <laughs> it's not passed down through genes. <laughs> uh, or is it? I don't know. I don't know how genetics works. I don't know how children work. I keep breaking them. <laughs> well, I know if you drop them from a high height, they break. Did you like that, Drew? <laughs> yeah. I wasn't sure where you were going with it, but I, uh, I appreciate humor. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's shuddering. <laughs> Albert, just because you don't know how they work doesn't mean you don't know how to break them. <laughs> so, Zach, anything anything more to say about Run, Love, Kill? Um, 
I, I think I've pretty well covered what I wanted to cover. I just wanted to give uh, a shout out um, to the cover artist. I think his name is Manu. Manu? Um, yeah, Manu Fernandez. So it's just got these uh, really cool, and these are the single issues. I don't know if you, you know, pick it up in graphic novel version or something and it has different covers. I do remember there being alternate covers to it at some point. Uh, the ones that I have are these cool, like, uh, 3D illustrated ones. It looks like maybe ZBrush or something. Um, but yeah, it's a really uh, unconventional but cool looking way to do a cover. And again, it just adds to that whole, like, cinematic sort of uh, visually offbeat but still cool vibe that the comic book has. Um, so yeah, those are, that's pretty much what I got for Run, Love, Kill. Sweet, sweet. sweet. Good recommendation. I'll have to check it out. Hopefully I can find the issues somewhere. Uh, it's not collected, is it? I think there is the a trade paperback. Okay, okay, yeah. awesome, awesome. Okay, I'll have to look it up. All right, moving on. Shanus. Or, wait, no. Did you go ahead, Drew? I, I believe it's you. It. My bad. It's true. Sorry. Listen about one. Let's save Shane is the best for the last, you know? He's our closer, people. He's the closer, He's closer. Yeah. So, All Drew. Right. All right, I'll go. So, my recommendation is a manga called Planetess by Makoto Yukimura. So, I don't know if this is something that you guys have ever uh, heard of or if you're familiar with it at all. So, I'll give... Um, a brief synopsis of, of what it is. So Planetess is a, it's more of a hard science fiction story um, as opposed to like a soft science fiction or space fantasy kind of thing. The, the premise of Planetess is that in the future, and I'm talking like, I think the story takes place in the year like 2074 thereabouts. So in, in the future, humanity um, has been able to commercialize uh, space travel and there's even uh, an outpost or a city on the moon. And there's a lot of orbital travel happening now. Um, and the, the, the story of the comic is that it follows a group of four uh, main characters who work as debris haulers. So there's this, there's this thing that I, I remember when I was uh, studying up on the science behind Planetess, I came across this uh, thing called the Kessler syndrome. Uh, I guess it's this real thing that some astrophysicist at NASA came up with um, several decades ago, but it's, it's just this idea about how uh, like uh, the density of objects in the orbit of the planet uh, will cause uh, space pollution because of collisions between objects. So like every time objects collide with each other, uh, little chunks of debris will fly off and if it happens enough times basically the the planet is going to be surrounded by all these little nuts and bolts and just little bits of metal and, and stuff so that's why uh in the world of planetess they need these debris haulers so these are basically just garbage men who go into space between earth and the moon um and they just look for whatever junk that they can find and make sure they get it out of the way so that if a space shuttle is traveling from uh, traveling through space and let's say a, a screw or something is floating in, in orbit, if that screw hits that space shuttle that's traveling at who knows how fast, you know, that, that's, that can cause some damage. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's an important but thankless task. Um, that, that's basically like a, 
the summary of the premise, um, the, the story itself has a lot to do with, um, I would say, there, there's a lot of human elements to it. It, it. it goes back to the notion of science fiction being uh, kind of a vehicle for um, like social commentary and the, the potential consequences of technology and the science behind it and the, and the innovations and how, how all those things affect uh, society and how, as, how they affect humanity on a societal level and how they affect humanity on an individual level as well. So you, you get to see things like how, uh, like one example would be just like the political situation, right? Like if, if we're in a world where space travel um, becomes commercialized, a lot of the, the wealthier nations on earth, um, they're basically monopolizing resources in space uh, because they're the ones who are able to get there first. So they can mine all these different minerals and establish things on the moon, stuff like that. And then the poor planets, like they can barely create, uh, you know, a single space shuttle to get to outer space in the first place. So they're, they've kind of, the poor planets kind of just descend into like political infighting or, or even civil wars where they get dependent on making alliances with richer countries. So like that, that's just like one element uh, of the story. Um, and, you, and then you see things about uh, like how the main characters uh, essentially deal with uh, their jobs. So there's also a big human interest element and kind of a, I guess, slice of life might be a good uh, descriptor for it. But yeah, it's, it's got elements of slice of life, uh, which is interesting for a science fiction story. It, it, this comic was originally published uh, in Japan in, I think from 1999 to 2004 or so. It's, it's, as far as manga goes, it's, it's not that long. It's like two volumes, uh, each, each one's a little over 500 pages a pop. Dark Horse has published it in English versions. Uh, I think I think these English versions came out in around 2016 or so. There's also an anime adaptation of the series, which I would also highly recommend. The problem is that I think uh, it's been unlicensed, so I'm not really sure where you can find it nowadays. Like you might have to look for an old DVD set or or order a, an import from Japan or something. But yeah, this is one of my absolute favorite manga, and it's one of my favorite science fiction comics. It, artwork is, it's, man, I, it feels like I don't really have uh, great adjectives to talk about pretty pictures. <laughs> it, it, all I can really say is that he, he really captures the, like really detailed machinery, like he can draw really intricate machinery, uh, but his people are great actors. Uh, they have realistic emotions. Uh, it almost, some of these drawings, sometimes it feels like, man, this guy should have been like an engineer or, or something, you know, like this dude could have been drawing uh, diagrams for, for NASA or something like that, um, or, or, or schematics or something, because it, everything just looks so believable from the equipment that they use in space. Uh, the people are really uh, well drawn. They're just fully realized as individuals. Um, 
yeah, can't really recommend this more. More, it's it's just one of my favorite uh, stories. Nice, nice. Hmm. Like there's a there's a couple moments in here that uh really resonated with me. Like I'll I'll, I'll share just something from the very beginning of the story because I don't think it's too much of a spoiler since you know you got like a thousand more pages to go <laughs> but but basically like the way this story comes begins is it starts off with uh one of the characters of the cleaning cleaning crew uh this dude's name is yuri and it, it it's kind of a flashback um that starts maybe like six years before the main story and then and then it takes place in like the 2070s but basically this guy yuri He's he's on this uh, space shuttle uh, on just a commercial flight with a bunch of other passengers sitting next to his wife, and they're I think they're just flying to the moon or something. But during their flight, uh, there's just this bolt, like a a loose bolt that must have flown off uh, a satellite or something, and this bolt somehow crashes into one of the window panes on the shuttle, and it causes a a massive accident. Um, as a result of that, basically everybody, like the, the shuttle gets destroyed, everybody ends up dying except for Yuri because it just so happens that he ended up going into a, a, a different area of the plane uh, or the, of the shuttle when that happened. So he somehow was able to survive that. Um, and after that, he ends up joining this, this debris cleaning section uh, to, to be a, a debris hauler because his last memory, uh, his last conversation with his wife before he got up to, to use the bathroom or whatever, she was showing him uh, this locket that she had, or I think it was either a locket or, or a, one of those old school magnetic compasses. It was just something that she had in her hand and they were talking about it. Um, and it had a message on the back of it that, or an inscription on the back of it that, uh, that she never told him what it said. So he was, he's thinking, you know, if he's a debris hauler, maybe there's a chance that he can find something, you know, as, as, as like ridiculous as the odds of finding a lost object in outer space are, you know, you know as long as ridiculous as that is. That's you know, heart wrenching stuff though. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's pretty heavy stuff. It's like, yeah. like right off the bat, you start reading this comic and it's just heavy emotional content hitting you in the chest. Yeah. And you just find out, uh, you know about his life and you see his journey as a uh, as a debris hauler and and like all of this is like slowly revealed to you as a as a reader um so it it builds a lot of uh there's just it's it's really compelling just to start off with in terms of of a uh, a plot and as you get deeper and deeper into it there's a lot of other elements of the story um because the nice thing about it is that it does have finality to it it's not one of those super crazy long-running stories that drags on but there's like an overall thrust to it you get to see things like uh how 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 their uh how the science in this story has affected uh the political climate of the world you know it's it's just a kind of like a reflection or a mirror into um an alternate world of consequences. Like, I think we we often say that uh, maybe not even just of science fiction, but fiction in general can can serve as a 
as a way of uh, showing you that no matter how great technology is, human beings are, are still always going to be the same, right? Like human, like the human experience is, is going to be pretty similar no matter uh, what te technology or, or time period you live in. And when you get down to it, people are still going to be pretty messed up. People are still going to make mistakes and make bad decisions, but there's still always going to be people that are going to be trying to do the right things as well. Um, and, and that's something that you definitely see in this story. Yeah, that really resonates with me because I think um, in addition to what you're describing, Drew, we also, we also tend to want the same things, don't we? I mean, mm -hmm. if you think about humans now versus, I don't know, 300, 500 years ago, um, you know, technologically, culturally, uh, things were a lot different, sure, but it seems like we, we have the same basic desires and we may have kind of different ways of going about getting them. But if you look at different cultures, different people, different time periods, that's why you can still read something like Shakespeare or, you know, some of the great Greek tragedies or whatever. And those still resonate with us even now because, you know, human nature, although the times change human nature, that sort of those sort of core things that we all go back to, don't really seem to change that much. Yeah. Um, Turns out yeah. people aren't very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> They're all one-dimensional. <laughs> now, also going back to what you're saying about the art, um, I remember when you were reading it, uh, you know, you sent me a few panels and stuff like that, and I, I had seen some of the anime but never finished it. Um, that makes me kind of want to go back now and, and finish the rest of those episodes. The, I remember being struck by, like, you know, the animation's pretty beautiful. It's pretty, it's really well done. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the art for the book, yeah, you're, you're spot on. Uh, it's pretty rare. Well, I won't say that it's usually when I see that level of draftsmanship for uh, machinery and hard surface materials, um, those types of artists for some reason who are really, really good with that stuff sometimes have a tendency to pull that same thing over into humans and then their human figures can be like super correct, like anatomically on point, but they look sort of like mechanical, kind of like lifeless or motionless. Mm -hmm. um, what really grabbed me though is like, this guy's such a stellar draftsman that he just, the two are just blended seamlessly. Like the organic forms feel organic and very expressive where they need to be. Um, and like you're saying, like the draftsmanship for the mechanical stuff is just impeccable. I don't know if he had like a consultant or like assistance or something like that for that, but that's, um, that was, that was a pretty incredible thing to see. Uh, he's just like, he's multi-talented, I guess. Yeah. Guy's crazy talented. Makoto Yukimura. He, it, he, I looked him up online to see his other credits and the only, seems like after he did this, there might have been another thing he did that I don't really, uh, I can't recall because it wasn't too major. But the thing that he's been known for um, since, because it's a series that is still going on right now, is it's called Vinland Saga, which mm -hmm. is kind of, I think it's a Viking type of story, a historical fiction. Um, I haven't read it, but it's definitely on my radar. It's something that I would want to read, but it's, it's, it's also daunting because it's a lot longer. I think it's, I think they're on like volume 14 or something like that. And it's still oh. going on. 
But yeah, it would be cool to see him drawing historical fiction as well. This yeah, comic, Planetess, sure. is uh, it's incredible stuff. For like sure, not, man. Yeah, and and like not just like his his ability as an artist is incredible, but even as a like a storyteller or, or writer, he, like the the concepts that that he came up with, um, it it gives this comic a, a lot of depth. Like there's a lot of um, like not just emotional depth, but socio-political uh, commentary, that kind of depth, like this kind of stuff that, that'll, like the more times you read it, the more time, the more stuff that you'll be able to extract from it. Like I was just flipping through the comic earlier and it made me think of uh, one, of the, one of the big themes in, in the work is space, uh, just outer space and outer space and space, like in a literal and a metaphorical sense, because it's like he's, he's able to juxtapose these images um, showing you the distance between humanity and the stars. But he also, a lot of the content of the story has to do with uh, the distance between two people emotionally. And, and the protagonist of the story, the protagonist's name is, is named Hachi. And his journey uh, of personal growth is something that I think anyone will be able to appreciate. Like, you don't have to be a fan of science fiction. You don't have to care about, um, like, the, I guess, the concepts of the science behind the ideas or anything. It's just like a human story about a young man uh, making an emotional connection with other people you know whether that is his co-workers uh his friends uh his his uh romantic interests or his his family like his parents and his brother you know like everything kind of revolves everything in the story kind of revolves around his ability to engage and connect with these people he's a guy that is like from the beginning of the story he's constantly striving to to be in outer space like that's that's the whole reason why he decided to take this crap job as a debris hauler just because he wanted an excuse to be in outer space and then as this as the story progresses he ends up signing up to try out to be on the team for this mission that's going to send out an exploratory vessel to explore jupiter because humanity hasn't gone that far before and he, he really wants to do that and his ultimate uh, goal in life is to one day uh, have enough money so he can buy his own space shuttle so he can just travel through space uh, you know at his at his own leisure so he's just constantly obsessed with with going to outer space and being in outer space and in the beginning you can kind of see how that obsession has hurt his relationships um, with the people around him and how it's made him harder to relate to people or made it harder for people to to relate with him because he's got a one-track mind but as the story progresses you do see the growth of this character and I, like I don't, i'm not going to spoil how it ends or, or tell you um the ending or anything but it, it's it's a story that you you really see a person um change and grow and by the time you get to the end of the story you just feel super satisfied and all you can really do is just pick up the first book and start back again from the beginning. 
I do feel like it's a pretty um, different kind of, it, it's a different sounding kind, uh, kind of science fiction than um, what was previously listed by like me and Zach in the sense that it, it feels like so much of it is based around, it, it, yeah, based around the idea that it's more of a slice of life comic. It's, it's an it's an avenue of science fiction that is definitely less flashy, but uh, you've sold me on it just in terms of it's just in terms of the way you've described how he's able to draw the schematics as well as the emotional core of the story. You know, it's mm-hmm. I it's it's hard to sell someone on the idea of hey uh, of like hey want to read this science fiction story about a garbage collector in space (laughs) it sounds super simple but at the same time like those are those are the kind of stories that i'm i do find that i'm drawn to because you know the hero's journey is great but you know what about the story of just the average man in space you know just what it's like living in the future yeah that's cool stuff that's cool stuff. I dig that idea. Yeah, it's it's not a flashy kind of uh, science fiction story. They don't have uh, laser guns or space battles or things like that. Yeah, or, like space battles in the in the Star Wars sense, where you got like dog fights and yeah, and X wings and star destroyers and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's a very much more grounded in reality type of story. It's science yeah. fiction, but it's it's realistic science fiction. You know, like there's a yeah. lot of there's a lot of uh, story elements that that play on uh things that we already do know about space like yeah there's there's uh like for example like it it actually takes into account that uh spaceships don't make any sound in space because it's a vacuum yeah uh, which is not something that you see people pay attention to in most other science fiction uh shows or movies in Star Wars, you're constantly hearing the pew, pew, pew. Yeah, you hear the roar of the engines, lasers shooting in space. But, you know, it really, it should, it should all be silent. Yeah. And then in Planetess, people, the people in, the, in, in their world deal with things like radiation poisoning or decompression sickness. Yeah. They get cancer because uh, there's just something about being in space, space and radiation. stuff. Yeah. Ambient, ambient space radiation. Yeah. And the more likely... Radiation. They're more likely to get uh, brittle bone disease because they, because they grow up in a in a people that grow up on the moon, right? Like they, they're they're in a lower gravity environment, so they can't really travel back to Earth without extensive preparations, or else it's going to hurt their bodies. So it feels like uh, Yukimura really took a lot of time thinking it through logically, just trying to examine how would this simple concept, uh, you know, really affect the world. And like even the other things, like I'm, I briefly mentioned earlier, there's there's a lot of things about environmentalism and and uh, and and the geopolitical climate and how rich richer countries get richer while the poorer countries suffer even more. Yeah. Um, even in your description of how like this, the weaker planets or the the nations. poor planets, nations or planets, nations. Oh okay. Yeah. They they don't yeah. they don't have it's not so advanced that they have colonized a bunch of planets or anything. It's right, just right, like right. the planet or the nations on Earth, right? Like yeah. different nations are still trying to reach 
space because not yeah. everybody has been able to get there. Well, that's the cool thing about that that kind of science fiction that takes place in the not too distant future where it's like it's advanced, but it's not so advanced that we can't see how there's mm -hmm. a reasonable progression from where we are. Yeah. You know, and yeah, I like I don't I don't necessarily feel like it has to be cautionary in and of itself as much as it is just observational. Yeah. And, and one thing about really cool. this, I will say this, this story is ultimately it's got an optimistic heart to it. Mm. Uh, again, I don't, I don't, I really don't think that's a spoiler, but it's just the tone of the overall work. It, it is optimistic. It, it, it's, it's optimistic about, it's optimistic about how it looks to the future. And it's also optimistic in terms of, of uh, basically like the, what is the best that people can be and, and, and what is the best or how does it look when people grow for the better and, and they learn something, you know, like people, people can actually, people that come off as, as like, uh, I guess people that you might think are, think of in a negative light, you know, give them some time and, and even, even they can change and surprise you and, and basically become uh, like better people. And that, that's not to say that this whole story is like some kind of navel gazing experience. Um, there, there is action in it. Like there's, there's a whole plot that's got to do with uh, terrorism and, and uh, orbital minds in space um stuff like that so it, it, it there's a there's a lot to it it's just like so so many varied types of emotional experiences and it's all within like i don't know 1100 or 1200 pages um it totally recommend it oh there there is a another funny story that i i wanted to talk about uh one of the one of the characters on the garbage disposal crew she uh she's on leave uh during the story uh for this one story arc she goes back to her home uh she's got a nine-year-old son and uh her, i guess her husband's just like a house husband keeps keeps takes care of the kid and stuff but uh her, her son is actually named albert <laughs> and this this kid albert he uh he likes to find dogs and and he he brings these stray dogs back home <laughs> which is pretty funny because yeah. that's exactly what you did yeah so those of you that are listening but not necessarily aware um literally about a couple of days before shelter in place and quarantine took full effect i uh ended up finding a dog in the street uh just sitting there and i took her in uh just you know initially um it was a temporary thing just until I could find her owner or something, but I haven't found her owner. And, um, you know, I've since decided not to return or not to send her to a shelter. So, yeah. So art imitating life. You definitely <laughs> got to make yourself business. company. Yeah. In female form. <laughs> That's an uncomfortable thing to say. <laughs> wait, wait, let me correct that. That's an uncomfortable thing to hear. <laughs> so drew going back to what you said about um this being a realistic sci-fi and how he took consideration about like there being no sound in space all these other um effects and consequences mm -hmm. i was briefly reading the fact that he actually didn't want to read anything on science 
about what happens in space because he wanted the artistic freedom to explore his own ideas. So I think it's interesting how he, maybe, I mean, there's always like the um, tertiary influence of the things that you hear about around you, but it's still interesting how he still thought about those details based on what he did know um, that still gave it that realistic view because most people, if they weren't, if they didn't know anything about science, would have gone the pew pew in space route. Yeah, totally. It, it's it's just the easier thing to do most of the time. Plus, people give the fans what they want, which is you want a lot. I, I would say, in all likelihood, the average person wants to hear the explosions. They want us. They want that experience of all that stuff. Yeah. So, well, another thing that's that's kind of along those lines of what you originally saying, one thing that caught my eye like straight out of the gate for a few episodes that I did watch, uh, for one, like you said, was it was super grounded, the attention aspect of it, um, especially with the with the whole concept of like the space junk. I mean it's not to the extent that it is, um, it's not right now to the extent that it is by the time, you, you know, you read Planetes or whatever, but even mm-hmm. now that's a thing. There's, there's an aspect of it that is a little bit visionary um, because it's looking at things that are already, at least now starting to take place. We do have like SpaceX and then other companies as well wanting to send private people up into space. Um, so that actually is a thing. And mm-hmm. then also, like I said, going back to the science of it, um, and actually, Shanus is like the, the physicist amongst us, so he can probably speak to it better than I can. Yeah. But basically, when something is in orbit around the Earth, it's in a constant state of free fall around the Earth, right? Like the, the gravitational pull of the Earth, which I guess like when we're here, like when we're on the ground is like 9.8 meters per second per second or something like that. So by the time you get up there, and you're in the atmosphere and beyond, and you're free falling at a few thousand miles per hour <laughs> around the Earth constantly. Basically, what happens with gravity is it's a warping of the curvature of space-time. So if you ever if you ever put like a ball on a on a blanket or something, it's going to create that little indentation, right? So if you put a little marble um, kind of close to where the ball is. It'll, you can let it kind of roll down to where the ball is. So think about it like that, except it's in three dimensions. So like the rolling just keeps going. <laughs> it keeps going and going because of that, that curvature, that warping in the curvature of space-time. So, so I was going to say one thing. Gravity is not what's warping a space-time. It's um, massive objects that warp the space-time um, that gives the curvature of what we see space-time, which is what... Um, manifests the effect of gravity. Yeah, that's what we experience as gravity. Thanks. Um, so yeah, there's this constant state of free fall. So that said, like you said, you have objects moving around at like a few thousand miles an hour. And when something breaks, like you were saying, Drew, um, it creates smaller pieces that are still moving at that speed. So y- you hit something else and it breaks again and mm-hmm. they they become like bullets, basically. So it's just like if you, you don't really think about, you know, say like if you drop a penny off the Sears Tower or something like that, but by the time it hits the bottom and hits whatever it's going to hit, it's built up all that speed, all that acceleration. Um, again, more physics, right? Force equals mass times acceleration, blah, blah, blah. 
Yeah, I mean, it hits, it hits terminal velocity, but yeah, it's moving. It, a penny dropped from the empty buildings, it moves, it, it, it'll be enough to go through somebody's head, pretty much, into their skull. Yeah, nice. yeah, so that will kill you. It'll kill you. <laughs> Zach is like, yeah, that'll kill you, and then Albert's like, nice! Is <laughs> <laughs> that sure why they have a net um, around the observation level of Empire Building and other buildings where that people go up to? Oh, that's interesting. I always thought that was to catch, like, jumpers. But. Well, I mean, that too, but it's it's also just meant to prevent people from, like, having the brain-dead idea, like, what if I just drop something? I'm like, yeah, no, you don't want to do that. Please don't do you'll that, be, yeah. you'll be You'll be convicted of, of first-degree murder, or if not, involuntary manslaughter. <laughs> well, to that, I would say, I wish you would step back from that ledge, my friend. <laughs> you could cut ties with all the lies that you've been living in. No, I'm <laughs> I just wanted an excuse to put some third eye blind in. <laughs> Man, good band. Good band. I miss those guys. Yeah, actually I do too. <laughs> but but yeah, to to your point, Drew, it was just to me it was impressive that they went to that much uh work to to make sure that this felt like it was very grounded in reality. Like it, it felt very much like a story that could take place in the reality that we lived in um, if we were a little bit more advanced, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, it's also, I don't, yeah, like at, at the end of the day, I'm not sure how, how plausible the situation is. Like, are we actually, if we ever get to the point where we start traveling through space, are we gonna need debris haulers like that too? Or is there some other solution? Um, to combat the Kessler syndrome. But uh, as far as the, this, this manga goes, like it, it made me believe in it. Like I, I could, I could see, uh, you know, like the importance of, of what these people are doing and, and why it needs to be done. And uh, yeah, again, like I think they're the, it's science fiction, but because it's more of a realistic science fiction where, you know, things are actually explained and, and described in pretty great detail it also kind of helps the theme, the realistic human themes uh, shine forth as well. Mm. Cause then you got, you got uh, people that are living in this world that, you know, maybe isn't super far off from our own, but they're also still pretty similar to people that uh, we all know, you know, they're, they're similar to us basically. Yeah. Yeah. And then you still have those, those themes of um, classism and inequality mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, greed just yep. you know, just basic human nature kind of stuff. Uh, even as far as the the trash collection, it doesn't seem too far fetched from where we are now. Yeah. I mean, if we look at the oceans and everything and how we've polluted this planet, it's, yeah. it's incredible. We're gonna it's pollute incredible. space. Uh, yeah. I, I, I just want to make one comment: is that that's probably the one unrealistic thing about the story is that uh, between <laughs> here and the moon, space is incredibly vast, and while we already have a lot of stuff in space, the idea of debris does exist. Um, all, everything is like literally like there's huge gaps of space between all the various satellites going on there. Like it, it would take it would take a lot of work to really trash the space between us and the moon. Like sounds like a challenge. <laughs> USA, USA. <laughs> well, the, I'll, you're, you're I'll gonna sign up say. for the space force now. 
So I'm going to sign up for the part of the Space Force that leaves garbage in space. That's actually the point that... Um, it's mostly going to be slushy containers. That's <laughs> <laughs> actually the point where a, a trash-collecting um, ship, or even 10 of them, would be really ineffective because to try to track down or chase down moving debris would require an expenditure of resources that would be... Um, not worth it when you could just let the items themselves eventually when they're out of use kind of eventually just decay and fall out from orbit and they they have ways of, of tracking that stuff and it can make sure that they do like burn up and atmosphere on the way down and hopefully land in the and primarily land in the ocean since the ocean is seven percent of the earth's surface well i was gonna sort of piggyback off that point which was if there is something if there was like a realistic more realistic or true to life version of it, it would be more that we'd be just too lazy to clean it up. <laughs> true that. We'd just be like, look, if the odds are that this one piece of debris is going to kill one person, I'm going to take that gamble. And instead of trying to prevent that from happening, what are the likelihoods that it's going to be me? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the honest truth is that they do kind of take care of themselves because uh they're always like small perturbations in any kind of motion. And all of these satellites are every now and then being managed by a bunch of like machinery and computers that track their motion. So they'll have to give them a small like minor adjustments to keep them on track. If those, if those satellites ever get out of use or defunct and they, they just lose track, they will eventually just wind around and crash into the earth. It's very unlikely they'll end up flying off into space because they don't, nothing they're will give stuck in energy to escape their orbit, so yeah. to speak. But if they, uh, if those if satellites crash back onto Earth, will they get completely burned up during re-entry, or will they? For the most part, because um, they're not aerodynamic, and they're going to be going at an at, at an angle most likely to just break the whole thing up by the time it even reaches any chance of doing any harm. So we don't have to worry about satellites raining down on our house or anything. I wouldn't. Say, you don't have to worry about. That. I mean, I'm not saying it's zero percent chance, but the chances of it hitting anywhere populated is very minimal. But is it a one percent chance? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's actually a little bit more than one. You know, because there's even a one percent chance. It's a point ninety nine percent chance. How about that? Okay. Thank you, Zack Snyder, for teaching me math. If there's even a one percent chance that he's our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty. Because that's how math works. I'm Batman. That's this why like I punch every child in the face time. because there's a 1% chance he's going to grow up to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll just say it's 0.99%. So <laughs> it, it doesn't quite meet um, Snyder's Batman's minimum of total absolute. But what if my mom's name is Martha? It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well that's all i have to say about planet test for now uh unless you guys have anything else you want to say all i can say is i really want to check out that, that manga and i want to check out the anime yeah 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 same same i'm glad i'm glad how many episodes was the anime again? it was 26 episodes i think it i think the anime was made in in around uh 2006 or 2007 so it, it came out after the 2003 the i believe Oh, it was 2003? Okay. Oh, okay, so I think it came out like right before the manga completed its run. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool, cool, cool. So, uh, if we're done moving forward, 
final we recommendation. Have the show closer. From Shanus. Big bad Shanus. Alexander Shanus, what you got? Star Wars, Rogue Squadron. Nice, man. And um, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> it's itself. What do I need to say? It's Star Wars and it's Rogue Squadron. I mean, if, if none of those words click with anybody who would ever listen to this podcast, I, I worry for them. Um, no, I, I picked this just because I felt when it comes to science fiction, as we were saying earlier before part of this podcast, um, the thing that we talked about before are just what really influences us in our lives. And it, it was, Star Wars is a thing that drove me in every facet of my interests. That's what made me curious about science. That's what made me want to explore more about math. That's what got me to science fiction. That's what made me spend a lot of my hours reading terrible Star Wars Expanded Universe books. <laughs> in hindsight, they're terrible when I was a kid. More Star Wars is more Star Wars, and I was happy for it. Um, That's enough for some people. And the, the, the funny thing with the Rogue Squadron stories is that I actually was not aware of the comic books um, until the 2000s, until I was, I was in college. And I was, a, I was made aware of the collected editions that were eventually being published. So I had actually written, I had written the X-Wing series written by Stackpole, who's the, um, who was actually... He was actually initially a, a co-writer of the his novels before I realized he also had comic books they'd written, which uh, he was actually writing them concurrently at the same time. Um, uh, even though the comic book stories by the time they end actually are the prequels to his novel series. Um, my, my, my love with them is because they dealt with characters aside from maybe a few drop-ins here and there that had nothing to do with the, what they call the main heroes. You barely hear or see Luke Skywalker, Leia, Han Solo, Chewbacca, or anybody else. It's about this ragtag group of, of um, rebels who, um, who a good number of them defected from the Empire, who was the controlling power in the galaxy at the time, and flew what I still think is the coolest designed starship ever, the X-Wing. Uh, and you kind of see these this slice of life of the soldiers from the scientific, science fiction perspective. Um, this group that kind of served as these, this arm of the rebellion that went on strange, bizarre, risky missions um, but the characterizations were also just a lot of fun. I, I liked seeing more about Wedge Antilles and these other characters that were briefly introduced in the Star Wars movies, uh, particularly in, in Empire Strikes Back and later on again in The Return of the Jedi. Uh, in the also like seeing that I got to the comic books after Stackpole's novels, and I really, I really enjoyed his writing. I enjoyed how he spun things together. It, it made reading more Rogue Squadron for me, um, it, it, it gave me a, a particular joy that I had more Rogue Squadron to, to read in a different, even if it was just a comic book format. Uh, and it was just nice to have like these stories about things that did influence the galactic um, state of affairs, but not on the scale of needing to like, talk about like, Dark Jedi or the Force or anything like overly sweeping. It was just about the struggle for power of the galaxy through the work and eyes of these of these foot soldiers um 
and yeah that's what i enjoyed from it was the simplicity of the stories there's nothing i wouldn't say there's anything deep or or i don't think it offered any like commentary it was just fun and it was well written um and it, i like the background it gave on the characters that i had grown to really enjoy um, I might have missed this, but did you did you mention how many like issues it ran for? I think it ran for thirty five issues, um, including a a wizard special one half issue, which I think was and I think was collected in the Battleground Tatooine trade paperback. Um, yeah, I don't have it for me. It's been a long time since I've looked at them. I just, I there are certain stories that do stand out in my mind. Um, and I just remember when I was buying the Cherry Paradox, I think the Battleground Tatooine had like in it the um, originally, originally published in, in these single issues. And I think the number one half was part of that. Uh, but the, the ones that stood out to me the most were the in the Empire Service and I think Blood Ties, the ones that involved um, Baron Sutterfell, who you never see his face, but he's, I think identified in the return of the Jedi as being the leader of the TIE Interceptor Squadron for the Empire. Oh, and I, I never, I never realized that. They went huh? back and retroactively said, oh, that, that character that shows up in a couple, for like two seconds, is actually uh, Baron Suntir Fell. Yeah, they, they, they did the same thing with Tycho Selchu when they introduced him in the comics. Um, he was one of the alien pilots, actually. Um, so they, they went back and like they identified all the either un, unmarked pilots or the uncredited um, characters, so to speak. Which is fine. It, I don't mind. It, you know, it adds a little depth and extraness to this universe. But what I liked more about those particular stories is that it was really more of a personal story for Wedge Antilles because it involved um, his sister who was married to Baron Sutterfell, who was a a um in a, like a top notch imperial pilot. He was like he was like the poster boy for the for the Empire, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but they got him they convinced him to defect just to kind of see that the Empire isn't what he thought it was but he initially joined only on the premise that as long as they would save his wife who was Wedge's sister then he would work with them so I mean since it was Wedge's sister it wasn't really like a hard decision to make but you kind of see his evolution later on where he begrudgingly joins them because he doesn't really have anywhere else to go to actually being an um a full-fledged member on, and working on their behalf, like, like without any real reservation. He kind of sees what's going on in Empire after it kind of falls from the power of the Emperor of Emperor Palpatine. Uh, but I, I like those part of the stories because it, it felt more character-based and it filled out a part of the universe that I feel tends to be neglected in lieu of lightsabers swinging, um, planet-destroying, um, pew pew things in space you know <laughs> like I, so as a side effect uh, not side effect but as a sidetrack thing um last weekend or the, i forget it was a weekend or two ago uh, a couple of friends and i who play the star wars card game from the 90s um we were doing a trivia uh game thing and one of the questions was um list all of the planet destroying weapons introduced in the expanded universe i i missed a part about expanded universe so i included the ones from the movies and so forth Apparently there are 13 in the expanded <laughs> universe of different forms. And, and if you also go back to the expanded universe and look at how many of these stories involve a dark Jedi or a, a Jedi trained by Luke who turned to the dark side, it's, it's, it's pretty high up there. 
And to the point, like, almost every series involved somebody else trying to take over the galaxy in some strange way. And as a kid, you're like, oh, this is cool. This is more Star Wars I like. Because as a kid, that's what you want is more Star Wars. But as you get older, you're like, yeah, but can I have something different in Star Wars? Like, there's this huge galaxy. That means there's got to be more characters, more stories. You don't want the same. Another sphere that shoots a big old red green laser. Yeah. And disappear. Or a bunch of characters just turning on lightsabers and you know it's like can i get something different you don't want to eat the same watered down meal that you've been getting served over and over i i really don't um and and as another side remark something that drew and i discussed over text is um so stackpole and zon actually had some interaction together they, they co-wrote um the comic book union um and they've actually you know You're speaking of timothy zon now the novelist yeah, timothy zon. um i just want to say like it, what made Stackpole work for me, what I enjoyed about his is the same reason why I like Zahn so much is because he did have a dark Jedi in his story, but it felt very secondary to the, to the role of the, the antagonist being this, this admiral who came from the background to kind of regroup the Empire. And sure, it involved Luke Lee and so forth, but you kind of had to have them in there for this first foray into the expanded universe. It was nice how there was an element of this emperor notion, but it wasn't the main part of the, the, the villainous side. And guess what? It didn't involve a super weapon. <laughs> because literally the next, the next trilogy that came after it, it involved literally two super weapons. <laughs> Those Star Wars writers. I guess man, they, they had to make up for weapons. the fact that Zahn didn't have one in his. You know, I don't know what it was. It's like if um, you don't, if you can't have a star, if you can't have a Death Star, then you got to have a, a World Devastator or a Sun Crusher or a Dark Saber. Or that's all I got. <laughs> <clears throat> they could make a space weapon that is essentially just a bunch of debris in space that crushes <laughs> a planet. <laughs> we'll just we'll just surround your planet with, with garbage. Debris. Yeah. <laughs> So if you try to fly out, you're going to get messed up. Yeah, and it, it'll just keep dropping from orbit over the course of decades, if not centuries. And eventually it'll kill everything. Yeah. <laughs> now that's a Star Wars I want to see. <laughs> Have you guys read any other uh, Star Wars comics? Oh, shoot. Where did Chainus go? He dropped out of the call. Oh no. Uh well he'll we'll see we'll see Hopefully if he tries he'll, to get back uh, in. Rejoin us. Oh, but, yeah, this is um a part of the sci fi comic universe that I'm not quite as familiar with just because I never really read too much Star Wars comics and um yeah. yeah same here. I've got a couple. I mean I've got that General Grievous one that yeah. uh, Drew got for me which is actually really good. It's pretty entertaining and I like the art with it a lot. Um, but in terms of just having uh, like serialized or even like big omnibus or big uh, graphic novel, like full of Star Wars, sadly enough, I don't. And it's something that I've, it's been on the back burner. Like I've kind of wanted to get into it more. Um, but Star Wars lore is, is really deep, it's huge. Uh, so I don't really know. Yeah, it's kind of daunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know what the best entry point is for that. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, I've read a lot of Star Wars comics in my time. So this uh, this story that Shanice brought up was a series that was originally published by Dark Horse Comics. So back in the 90s, uh, up until like the last few years, Dark Horse Comics was the, they, they were the license holder for Star Wars. So they were the ones that published all the Star Wars comics. Uh, this was before uh, Disney bought Marvel, of course. Right. Before Disney bought Marvel and Star Wars. Yeah. So I read, growing up, I read a lot of Star Wars comics from Dark Horse. And like, even even to this day, like I'll still go to the library and, and check out um, a lot of the, well, previously over the past decade, I, I read a lot of the Dark Horse comics from the library. And, and even today, to this day, um, the Marvel stuff that they've been doing, I, I read those Star Wars comics uh, as well. I mean, I can't say I read every single one or I follow every single one, but I've at least um, read a, a bunch of them. I've, I've given a lot of them a try and just dabbled in them uh, just to see if they'd be anything that I would enjoy. And to be honest, when it comes to Star Wars comics, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad ones. It's like, um, it's kind of like how with superhero comics, you'll find your really good ones and then you'll find a lot of just jobber ones, right? Like the stuff that you could read it, you're not going to care about it later yeah. on, you know? Like you'll you'll never feel compelled to go back to it or or reread it or or even look at it other than a sense of nostalgia. Yeah. <clears throat> but with with Star Wars comics, it it does feel like um it's kind of the same thing where there's there's They've pumped out so many Star Wars comics. Um, a lot of them have been lackluster. Some of them have been decent. And a few of them have been actually really good. And I will say that... Oh, there you go. There's Shanice. He's coming back on the call, it looks like. Uh, and yeah, I've been having issues with Zoom the past few days. It was pretty stable for a few hours, which was miraculous. But I feel like I'm going to be experiencing what I did last night, which is intermittent failure. But... I'm hoping it's a Wi-Fi disconnect, not a Zoom conflict. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I, was, I was talking and then I saw everybody freeze up and I was like, oh, oh, yeah, there he goes. Oh, <clears throat> wow. Because, yeah, I think from our perspective, it, it felt like you, you, you didn't get cut off in the middle of a sentence or anything. It just so, stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I, yeah, I was just saying out. that uh, I, w I would say that Rogue Squadron is pretty high up there for me in terms of Star Wars comics. It it's definitely top five for me. Nice. A lot of the nice. same reason that, that Shanice, uh described earlier. He, it's, it's a series where you, you do get a lot of um, characters that you can really enjoy uh, and sink your teeth into. They're not, again, they're just like characters that are original characters created by Michael A. Stackpole. Mm. Um, so one of the, one of the uh, I guess, entertaining aspects of the story is, you know, because they're dogfighting soldiers, you never know who's going to die in the next mission. You know, there's always this level of uh, danger involved in, in what they do. Um, also, also elements of uh, heroism and, and sacrifice as well. Mm. And there are actually quite a number of deaths over the course of the series. Even characters have been around for a number of issues that, like, there are, like, it does deal with those consequences. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes it feel kind of like a, like a war comic, like a Star Wars war comic. You got characters that 
he he they get built up over the course of a story arc or a couple of story arcs and then later on you know something tragic happens to them on a mission and you're just like oh why did he have to die <laughs> i mean to, to be to be fair he never actually touches the what i call the main four rogue squadron which are wedge antilles teichel selchu west jansen and derek hobby clivian yeah um they they remain for a long long time um but there are there are threads thrown in there um because in the comic book they they revisit the dark letter farm um mm. and in the novel series they actually kind of make mention of that because they go back and find Biggs, I think, cousin, Gavin Darklighter, and, and, have, and ask him to join um, their group. So it, it's kind of a, it was a nice little connection there. Yeah. Yeah. Can if, I, if you guys uh, ever want to delve into um, Star Wars expanded universe stuff, the X-Wing hmm. novels of Michael A. Stackpole are definitely a great starting point. Well, the Thrawn trilogy by Timothy Zahn is probably the place to start, but then those X-Wing novels and, and then these X-Wing, uh, the Rogue Squadron comics, like those are, those are, if you just want some good Star Wars stuff and you're okay if it doesn't have Luke, Han, and Leia and Chewbacca and the droids, you know, this is, this is the good stuff right here, man. And, and just I'll add in there, I actually did also enjoy Aaron Olsen's run on X-Wing, the Wraith Squadron. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually never read those. But you've read, uh, you've definitely read more than your fair of Star Wars books, man. Yeah, definitely. There was a time when uh, it was Shanice's mission in life to collect every single piece of Star Wars material. <laughs> yeah, until about like 2000 something, I forget. I, I think at some point I realized that this, this is, it just got a little too silly. I'm like, this is, nope, had enough of this. <laughs> That's awesome, though, uh, Shanis. So for the time that you were dropped, we were discussing because you and Drew have both. You guys are like the Star Wars encyclopedia of the four of us. Um, yeah. You've read a ton of ton of Star Wars stuff. Um, Albert and I, I I've, have... I've literally read everything except for the Star Wars Adventure Journal um, to the into the beginnings of the Legacy of the Jedi publication series that del ray was doing some years ago it's okay I, I have a feeling that albert and zach don't know what legacy of the jedi is anyway but <laughs> it was the last <laughs> few publication series before del ray lost i think licensing rights when disney bought out all of star wars wait who publishes star wars novels now i thought it was still del ray it still del ray? oh okay but it's under the disney licensing right yeah, it's just that uh, now since Disney bought Star Wars, they have their own expanded universe continuity. So all right. the stuff that we enjoyed from the past, I think everything that came out before like 2015. It's called Legacy, actually. Star Wars Legends, I think. Star Wars Legends, that's right. Star Wars Legends. Yeah, it's right. called Star Wars Legends. Uh, Somewhere like, in the 90s when it was published under Bantam before it went back under Del Rey. Yeah, that's right. Bantam was the 90s publisher and then Del Rey had it. I think Del Rey still has it, but I, I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I've read a Star Wars novel. <laughs> so, so I had two questions then coming off that. Um, one of which you guys have already pretty much answered because we were, Albert and I were discussing like, what are some good solid story runs to get in? It's kind of a jumping in point. Yeah, um, I was, kind of, I was on, about to ask that myself. Like for someone who's never read comics and 
maybe isn't even all too familiar with Star Wars, what's a what's a good spot to jump in? But yeah, I would start to interrupt. I would, say, I would definitely say Rogue Squadron is a good place to to jump into. They also did um, a comic book um, version of Zon's um, Thrawn trilogy too, mm-hmm. so we could read those. I never read them because I read the novels, but I'm curious. I'm kind of curious to see how they did it in the comic book format. I would also really recommend the Star Wars Tales, even though the last few issues dealt with um, ongoing um, stories that felt more like somebody trying to shoehorn in a serious Star Wars story that kind of felt more like like the repetitive generic, like, oh, another tale of a dark Jedi and doing this that didn't really do anything very fascinating. There were a lot of stories in there that were just one-offs and just various creative teams just exploring telling a story in the star wars universe which was a lot of fun yeah star wars tales was a an anthology series that dark horse published so it was like it came out i think every four every three months or something but it was 64 pages with creative random creative teams from from all across the spectrum of comics um so they're even like indie guys as well as established mainstream dudes uh even a couple of manga artists here and there just doing stories that didn't have to fit into the continuity of Star Wars. They could do like any kind of story that they wanted. Yeah. So it was like just full of creativity. In fact, it's what spawned the Star Wars Elseworlds universe, which they ended up doing their own like actual like re- redux of the original trilogy in that in that world where, um, <laughs> let's just say, White Vader shows up. <laughs> <laughs> White Vader. <laughs> wow. All right. Um, but. They even have a story in Tales where, like, the Millennium Falcon crashes on some jungle planet or somewhere, and then after thousands of years pass by, there's a story about the Sasquatch, and it turns out that it's Indiana Jones investigating the tale of Sasquatch. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, that is great. It's <laughs> so good. Um, That's pretty also, funny. Also, I'll say Tag and Bink are a great fun romp for the Star Wars galaxy, and. I would go as far as saying Crimson Empire, the first, the first one, I actually think is an interesting take on um, the power play in, in the Imperial Remnants between characters that are not exactly fully fledged force wielding characters. Um, and it was it was more of a, it definitely involved more of the Imperial um, entanglement side of things than really involving a lot of light side characters. In fact, I don't think I don't think any of the main characters show up in that story at all. I think it's um, the only rebels that show up are like some side spy group or something. I forget, but all I know is that it didn't involve lightsabers, didn't involve um, a lot of force powers until the very end, and didn't involve uh, super weapons. Hmm. Were there were there Kybar crystals though? Uh, not that I recall. <laughs> <laughs> and and no Death Star. Am I right? Yeah, those those no those no Death Star. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, well now write that one off. I mean, unless there's a giant, <laughs> unless there's a giant death weapon or a big explosion, you know. Not <laughs> I just want a comic book about what the Death Star does on its off hours. <laughs> um, I, and it would be a comic about the Death Star going grocery shopping, and then <laughs> internet dating. <laughs> Actually, so I would also recommend Union. It was a co- story written by uh, Michael Stackpole and Timothy Zahn, the two, I think, most popular, or at least the best writers of the Star Wars Expanding Universe, where they put together the characters from Thrawn Trilogy that 
that survived, like Mara Jade and, and Stackpole's characters from Rogue Squadron, like particularly, it was also a fairly female-centric story because it was about the marriage of Luke Skywalker to Mara Jade. And one of my favorite sequences in there were um, all the female characters, Leia, Mara Jade, Winter, um, Mirax, um, Essentially, the wives of the prominent male characters want to go and celebrate, and the version of Bachelor Party is to play some sport game that's popular in their universe, um, where they essentially beat up a, an all-male team that thinks they're all, they're the they're the SH star T. They're like they're they're, they're, like, they're like what what do you guys what do you think you're doing? We're 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 you know like the, these these big buff men like we're we're pros at this. What do you what do you think you're doing? Like and they don't understand how strong these women are. I just it was one of the funnier scenes. I just I enjoyed it a lot. I remember that. Yeah, that was funny. That was a funny scene. <laughs> I do like that comic, the Union. That, <clears throat> that that's a comic that was uh, very specific to that uh, era of continuity. <clears throat> but it, uh, I I've, I enjoyed it enough to to buy myself my own copy of that man. The art was cool in it too. Robert Taranishi. It's actually one of those things that I'm really glad was done in comic format versus novel format because there's something about seeing that wedding take place that you would not necessarily have in the same way through a novel. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like I like being able to see uh, like the, the their designs for the the clothes and and I guess their culture. It's it's just creative, man. It's it's fun to yeah. look at. Um, it's it's right up there with the Superman wedding album. Can't tell if that's a compliment or not. <laughs> oh man, yeah, I, it, I remember that Superman wedding album. That that was there were there were some uh, pretty I mean, corny musical flick shows up in there. It's actually pretty entertaining. Yeah, it it's something that I think would be entertaining, but it's not something. It's not a comic that I I feel like a strong amount of affection for or anything. Oh like no, that. no, not at all. But it's something I'd be willing to read again, just because Mister Mizuplik shows up in there and shenanigans ensue. Yeah, if I found it for a quarter, I'd probably just buy it. Yeah, it's nice just, man. Just for fun, Mister Mitzi's eighty-page giant. Much love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had another sense. question, Zach. Yeah, yeah. The second question, then, um, going back to Star Wars a little bit, and I hope I'm not opening up a can of worms. Forgive my ignorance, since I have not read much Star Wars. Um, but continuity-wise. I mean, is are the comics their own thing? Is that a standalone thing, or is there some stuff that's considered canon and then other stuff that's not? Or like, how does how does that work? I can answer that. It's so the thing with the continuity of the comics, as well as all the other uh, mediums, including like novels and and shows and stuff. So like, basically, everything up to a certain point in time is no longer in continuity. Uh, with the exception of, I think, the Clone Wars TV series. And the Rebels animated series. And the Rebels animated series. So those are still in continuity. But as far as like printed literature goes, uh, all the novels uh, and comics from the Dark Horse era and from like up, un up until uh, like right before The Force Awakens came out, I guess, like that stuff wasn't, that stuff is no longer in continuity. However, now there are uh, novels and comics uh, that are technically part of the continuity. Um, they're part of the canon that's supposed to fit in with uh, all the movies. So all the comics that have been published by Marvel in the past several years, ever since Marvel got the license back, all of those are back in continuity 
or not back in continuity. Those are part of the new continuity. Uh, and there's, they're also still making uh, new novels. So whatever novels that come out in the future are part of that continuity as well. Um, unless they're specifically written with the legends, I think, subtitle, right? But I think they're. Um, I don't even know if they're making st- stuff that's still in the Legends continuity. As far as I know, they, they've completely stopped that. Yeah, I know. I, I feel like that they they were saying they were going to let that happen, but obviously, like it's not their money making scheme because it's not part of the Star Wars universe they're trying to create. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't think they really care. Like they they keep the old stuff in print, and the old stuff has the Legends banner, so you know that it's not <clears> part of the official canon. But um, as far as what's in canon or what's not in canon or what's not in continuity. I don't really care, man. I just want to read a good story because if you ask me something like, did that really happen? <laughs> did, did, did Wedge's sister really marry Baron Fell? I would just tell you, nah, man, never did anything. <laughs> they ain't real. <laughs> they ain't real, man. Just, they never did anything. <laughs> read it, enjoy it, and then go live your life. Um, but Zach, to answer another part of your question, at the time these novels and comics were being published, um, they were never part of the continuity of the original trilogy or anything like that because they were never canonized officially by Lucasfilm. But there was a, a team dedicated in the Lucasfilm company to overseeing um, um, stories that were submitted for review of like, can we publish this or can, can this story be written? Just to make sure, because there apparently was a continuity team that also kind of wanted to address it. Nothing was published or written that kind of countermanded anything that was actually canon in the Star Wars trilogy of movies and the prequels. Um, so there, there was a team that kind of handled continuity, but, in, but it, it was only internal to the expanded universe. But even then, it wasn't always perfect. And again, as a younger, as a younger kid, even through like high school days, it was kind of cool to have a universe that had continuity, but looking back and seeing how tr- how bad some of those books were, I'm 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 more happy to say that I don't care about the continuity. I care more about the fact that I got some good literature out of that by by writers who knew how to write characters and give me science fiction through this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, yo. The other thing I was going to mention before, before we started talking about some other stuff, um, going back, I want to go back to uh, Star Wars Tales, uh, which was one of the, the, which was the anthology series that had a lot of uh, high powered creator talent behind it. Like the, the thing is, um, because that was under Dark Horse, um, like Marvel still publish, reprints uh, a lot of the Dark Horse material. But the problem with what Marvel is doing with the old stuff is that they're trying to print everything in chronological story order. So it's actually not too easy to get Star Wars tales nowadays, unless you go to a, a quarter a back issue bin or try to find the old dark horse trades, because like I said earlier, these stories um, in, in tales were they could take place anywhere in time or even just like these stories about Star Wars. So sometimes you'll find like random snippets of those stories in different Marvel uh, trades today, just because Marvel thinks they fit in with the continuity or the chronological order of those stories, which I think is lame, man. They should just reprint all of those in, in one stinking omnibus. Cause you got massive talent on it, man. You got like artists like Sean Phillips, uh, 
writers like Garth Ennis, uh, you know, it's, it's Stan Sakai, Sergio Aragonis. Uh, I, I think there are some, I think one of the Hernandez brothers did something to, I think, I want to say Gilbert Hernandez did, did a story for him. It's just like a wild assortment of top tier talent as well as uh, like, you know, mainstream people doing Star Wars stories and it's just a shame that it's it's not super easy to find it uh, or just get a hold of it nowadays. I mean, all I can say is that out of the perspective of, of fandom, I, I think it's actually kind of cool to Disney to go in there and take the time to extract some of the stories that do go as parts of other existing stories to make those questions more complete. But I would like it, like you said, if they also did a, a proper omnibus of the tales as they are, so give, give people a chance to have both versions of the tales as this anthology collection, as well as if they're stories that were part of some other story, sure, throw it in there. I, I, think that's, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a double dipping in that side, <coughs> because that way you get a completeness on both sides. Those who just want the complete anthology, or those who want the complete chronological story that they might care about. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. Actually, yeah, now that I think about it, there... There's a chance you could just find those stories uh, on Comicsology, digital. Yeah. digital, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I I don't have anything like Marvel Unlimited, so I'm not sure if if Marvel Unlimited has the old Dark Horse Star Wars comics. Um, but I think if you just go on Comicsology, you can find uh, a lot of the older uh, Dark Horse uh, Star Wars Obscure comics there stuff. too. Yeah. yeah. But you know us, man. We we like having physical comics. We like we like knowing that a tree died for our entertainment. <laughs> my so my my only one complaint before Dark Dark Horse lost the licensing for Star Wars was they eventually did omnibus editions of a lot of the Star Wars comic book stuff. But I was I really wish they did it in the normal size of the issues, not the the smaller versions. Yeah, um, that's the only oh, thing I wish they, they did had the digests. Done. Or, yeah, the digest versions were. They're they're still bigger than uh, the dimensions of a typical manga, but they're smaller dimensions than your typical trade paperback. Yeah. Speaking of uh, going back to, I think Zach asked the question earlier about uh, good jumping on points for Star Wars uh, comics. There's some others that I wanted to mention because I really liked uh, Star the series called Star Wars Legacy, mm. which was by John Ostrander and Jan Dersima. Uh, Ostrander, probably best known for writing The Spectre and Suicide Squad for DC back in the 80s and 90s. Both of those are great series. And he wrote a lot of Star Wars comics. Uh, he wrote a lot of stuff that happened in the Clone Wars era. But I, I definitely want to highlight the series uh, with Jan Dersima, Star Wars Legacy. And the reason why I think this comic is a good jumping on point is because it takes place, I think it's like hundreds of years in the future. So it's like generations and generations after Luke, Han, and Leia and them are all dead. I don't think it's hundreds. I think it may be just around about a hundred or so. Okay. It's, it's, it's like substantially far enough in the future where you don't have to deal with all the people um, that you think of when you think about Star Wars. So it's just setting, it's just telling its own story in its own, in the Star Wars universe, but with all original characters mm. having their own adventures and, it, it's, it might have been, what, 50 issues long or so? It, it was substantial. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember the whole thing. I read the, maybe the first um, volume. <laughs> yeah. The art was really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. About, as, as far as Star Wars stories goes, that's one to check out. What were you saying? I was going to say, what about that uh, Matt Kent Star Wars? The one about the. Yeah. Uh, spy. I wanted to bring that one up too. Yeah. I think it's yeah. called a Rebel Heist. Yeah. That one was written by Matt Kent. I can't remember who the artist was, but. It was one of the very last Star Wars comics that Dark Horse published before they lost the license. It's a four-issue miniseries, and it's Matt Kent um, doing a Matt Kent story in the Star it's Wars universe. Spy, yeah, it's him doing spy stuff in the Star Wars universe, and if you guys aren't aware, Matt Kent, he just loves that espionage sort of storytelling. So, you know. Also, I mentioned Paul Chadwick's work on the Dark Letter story arc in... Um, Star Wars, I think it was Empire. Empire, yeah. Yeah, that's one of my favorite Star Wars stories as well. Paul Chadwick was the writer of that story. And Paul Chadwick's the dude who created Concrete. So I'll always love his work. Didn't he also do the other thing um, for Dark Horse, the, the group that goes into the center of the Earth? or Oh, you're thinking of the world below? Yeah, the world below, yes. That, that would have been a fun pick for a science fiction recommendation as well. Yeah, it's like a weird true. little pulpy kind of, it's like an, it's like an old school, like 1920s science fiction kind of story. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Another uh, Star Wars story that I'd recommend is, uh, it's called Legacy 2. So it's, it sounds like a sequel to the John Ostrander, Jan Dersima series I, I just talked about, but it's by a totally different creative team. This one, again, this one is one of the last um, one of the last Star Wars comics published by Dark Horse before they lost the license. And this, it was by uh, Gabriel Hardman and Karen Becco, which is one of my favorite teams in comics. Like they've they've done a lot of great stuff since then, um, and I would definitely recommend Legacy too. It, it, it just like the first Legacy, it, it takes place uh, you know a hundred years after the main uh, Star Wars saga, so. It's just a story set in the Star Wars universe with all original um, characters and storylines. Is it the same characters from Legacy? It's different characters from the first Legacy. So you really don't have to know anything about it. I mean, I I imagine you already know what Star Wars is. And as long as you know what Star Wars is, you know, you have enough of a fundamental understanding to to enjoy this. (laughs) I mean, there has to be a Skywalker involved. I think the main character is actually a descendant of Leia, so her last name is Solo. Uh, okay, well, hey, that answers that. I mean, those are that's a bunch of good material to jump in on. Yeah. That is a lot of Star Wars. Even the current Marvel stuff, some of that stuff is good too. Like Jason Aaron was the writer of the main Star Wars comic, and he wrote probably about 40 issues of that. I think it's all in an omnibus now. That's some entertaining stuff. Even the run after him, written by uh, Kieran Gillen, that was some good stuff. I wasn't a big fan of the artwork, but the, in terms of being able to just enjoy the stories, I, I like those comics, man. As far as Star Wars comics go, they're good. <laughs> and I compared to, like the, guys, to the new trilogy. You guys trilogy. should do another episode just on that. We could do a, a Star Wars-centric episode because there's a lot <laughs> of Star Wars comics out there. Hey. What were you saying, Shanice? I was saying, how, how do the Star Wars comics written by Aaron and Gillen compare to the writing of the Star Wars sequel trilogy? Oh, I'd rather uh, read those comics, man. 
<laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> it's, it's like I'd, I'd rather take those comic pages probably and put them into like um, what's it called, a zoetrope, and just rotate it around and get a movie out of those pages than watch. <laughs> All right, guys. Before we uh, wrap things up, did you have any uh, honorable mentions that you wanted to mention? Wow, that was a weird thing to say. I said mention twice in a row. <laughs> mention, mention again. Because <laughs> I think, Zach, you said uh, you had some honorable mentions. Dude, yeah, um, I have a few. I didn't want to just, like, jump in and accidentally run someone over, so uh, he hesitated there. But, yeah, cool, man. Um, I've, got, I've got RoboCop Terminator sitting here uh, on my desk. Oh, I love that comic. <laughs> Frank Miller and Walter Simonson at their peak. Nice. <laughs> so it, good. It's such a classic, man. It's just it's such an enjoyable read and uh it's fully entertaining from uh cover to cover. It's another uh four issue arc. And um this one this one is complete. It's the, it's like a, a one and done kind of arc, but mm -hmm. um I, I don't want to give anything away. If you like Robocop and you like Terminator read it you will you will not be disappointed um another another honorable mention uh for me is uh we stand on guard that's uh brian k vaughn steve Spross. Um, nice yeah great team great storyline it's a i guess it's kind of a post-apocalyptic type deal uh but not the usual the usual way you'd uh, imagine that um yeah. It's kind of a postmodern take on that post-apocalyptic thing with like mechs thrown in, with like crack military squadrons thrown in. Like if you took, uh, I don't know, like a, a super suspenseful military show or something, not exactly like 24, but you know, where there's just like a whole team of people, almost like an A-team type deal, but it's like in the military, in the future with their version of mechs and like heavy machinery and stuff blowing up and then the storyline's really good too so from what i remember the the description was what if in the future america goes to war with canada <laughs> yeah <laughs> that, that was basically the premise there you um, go yeah. yeah that leads to um, a post-apocalyptic future yeah <laughs> that's what happens when you unleash the might of the friendliest people on earth <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot of like uh backhanded sort of uh political commentary that that borders on satire in there and it's it's really enjoyable i love it yeah um when you mentioned matt kent uh, a few minutes ago uh it it sort of brought my mind back to the run that he did on rye oh Valley. yeah yeah with uh with clayton crane which is just oh, man the, the artwork in there is just unbelievable i mean the story obviously is really good but it's just like they gave uh, Clayton Crane free reign to sort of reimagine this whole uh, world or this whole universe that the story takes place in. And yeah, if, you, if you're looking for eye candy, that's, that's the one. Check it out. You, do uh, Albert, do you and Shanice have any uh, honorable mentions that you want to briefly mention? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well... Uh, I've got some stuff that uh, was in contention for best sci-fi 
and ultimately I chose not to include them just because I either wanted to put them in a different category or I had other works that were by the same writer uh, listed multiple times on the list and I didn't want to, you know, as much as I love them, I didn't want to shill for them. I just wanted, you know, the ability to have more variety. Uh, so uh, one comic in particular that I could recommend is Descender, which is by Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen. Nice. Um, I don't know if you all are... I don't know if it's like abundantly clear, but Jeff Lemire is a dude that I read a lot of and whose body of work, um, I own a lot of his comics and he's, he's a guy who's whenever his name is attached to anything, I definitely check out his, uh, I, I'll take the time and energy to go seek it out and check it out. Um, Ascender is, I'm going to do this, even though I've told Drew multiple times that I hate doing this. But it's kind of a sci-fi Pinocchio story, I guess. <laughs> Star Wars meets Pinocchio. Star Wars meets Pinocchio. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dustin Nguyen's art is uh, incredible. Everything's got this uh, almost watercolor pastel. Style, right? Yeah, it's a pastel watercolor-ish sort of look to it, but it's also kind of cartoony at the same time. Um, and it's a story about how in the future, um, you know, they're the, in the future, um, all these planets have this expanded empire and uh, one day, and they all have these robotic servants. They've integrated robots into their society, but they, they're a servant class. And then one day these giant space, like giant planet sized robots basically show up and, threaten the planets and these giant robots are there. No one really knows what they are or what they want. And what ends up happening is the robots wipe out uh, the planets and basically send them back in terms of their technology, you know, a couple of centuries, you know, just they're, they're not at the point where they're using like stone tools or anything again, but their, their technology is, or their societies have been greatly reduced and they, and that's just where the story starts. And they, as a society are living in constant fear that these monoliths or these giant robots will return and uh, do it again or finish the job rather. So, Sounds like Pacific Rim, almost. Uh, it's better than Pacific Rim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, the basic premise. I'm not saying it sounds like in quality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, there are some similarities. Yeah. But it's um, it's a great series. I highly recommend it in terms of a sci-fi comic. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, I, I guess I have a few. I got a, a bunch, man. I don't, I don't know if... I, I really, you really I'll, want me to like I'll just throw a couple of knock them all out. <laughs> if I can. Yeah, um, sure. Garth Ennis's Ministry of Space. Warren Ellis. Warren Ellis. It was Warren Ellis, okay. Yeah. Also, Warren Ellis' Switchblade Honey it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I love Warren Ellis, man. He's another one of my favorite writers ever. And he yeah. is uh, a guy who has written a lot of science fiction comics. Yeah. Um, like, well, Stuff like Ministry of Space, Orbiter, Ocean, like they have yeah. a, a lot well, of similar so things. Too, yeah, yeah. He, I was he, gonna say Orbiter. It's a lot is of uh, really good. Yeah, <laughs> and 
and he wrote he writes a lot of stuff about um space exploration and and just the sense of wonder of being like an astronaut or or having that ability to traverse the cosmos like there's a, a definite sense of of appreciation and and awe for those kind of things but he likes he, he's written like tons of different types of science fiction stories yeah I think I think Mike Carey has also done quite a bit of science fiction angled stories in the comic format. Like which but, ones are you thinking of? I don't. I don't. I'm not as familiar with his titles. I just know he did a really good job on Fantastic Four, and of all the superhero stories, Fantastic Four I'd say is the most science fictiony of them all. That's true. Yeah. 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 He he wrote a lot of his other comics that come to mind. Mike Carey's comics are are more along the lines of, of fantasy or horror, like Lucifer or Unwritten. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah let's see i'm just you know i'm i'm here in my room and i'm just looking over at my library uh, just trying <laughs> to pick stuff out like that's that's the thing about about uh just coming up with uh i guess honorable mentions if if uh we didn't plan to in the first place it's like yeah i i can say i can name drop a couple of things that i really like man but yeah. later on I, we're gonna get off this call and i'm gonna be like dang i can't believe i forgot yeah. to say that yeah. one i i want to give since you mentioned joe casey earlier automatic kafka i would say falls into the science fiction yeah element a bit that was a crazy comic i, I love joe casey man <laughs> i'm not sure if, if, if i'm not sure if i would really consider that science fiction but i'm not going to argue it it's definitely um very unusual very trippy existential yeah. speculative well here's the other thing i was going to say um like a bunch of the titles that were mentioned i've i have a feeling that we're going to see them again because this is a series that we're going to continue where we want to continue to make recommendations of comics for people who aren't used who are getting their first exposure to comics and a bunch of these names are familiar so there's there's definitely a chance that they're going to be included in future podcasts and we're going to talk at length about them right they're going to like, have their own chance in the spotlight so yeah let's finish your top marvel 25 you got to do the top dc 25 right we will yeah which will be another five years ahead yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well we have our uh our uh, army of scholars, mystics, arcanists, <laughs> academics, locked in a warehouse doing all their research while they, you know, properly tabulate and calculate which 25 DC comics will deserve to be on that list yeah. on a purely mathematical objective standpoint. They've been locked away. We haven't allowed them to see their families because we just want them to focus on comics. They're <laughs> like, they're babies, they're now children. And by the time they're done with the DC list, those children will be teenagers. So. <laughs> I mean, it has to be done because if, if, not, if not for this, then who else will get a, a good top 25 recommendation, right? Exactly. We're doing a public exactly. service here. Yeah. Someone's, someone's got to do it, man. Yeah. They're, they're, developing, they're developing the algorithms right now. It'll, it'll take another few years uh, before they put the quantum <laughs> computers on it. Yeah. We got this. We got this. And then, like emperors of ancient uh, of ancient uh, times, we're gonna murder them all after we're done using them, so that their secrets are known only to us and will never be used <laughs> by our enemies. <laughs> we're gonna bury them all alive in a mass grave. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so that their corona. knowledge and their wisdom and their secrets are only wow. for us. <laughs> wow. We got time travel, regicide, mystery schools. <laughs> this is all sounding very metal. I like it. <laughs> it's guttertastic. Uh, it is gutter, gutter same Gutter sensation, gutter national. I don't know. <laughs> gutter, gutterific. Uh, it is gutterific. Gutter pendus. Gutter bunga. Biffortastic. <laughs> gutter. Between tastic. <laughs> Gutterness. Uh, all right, guys. I think that's about time to wrap things up. This was probably our longest episode ever, but I had a lot of fun talking about science fiction comics with you guys. It was cool beans, guys. Thanks for bringing me along here again. Yeah, yeah, we'll it was great. We'll see nice. you all again. Yep. Thanks for joining our show, Shanice and Zach. Uh, this is Between the Gutters, signing out. Signing out.